0: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, as Nike turns 50 years old this month, we look back on some of our conversations with Nike executives, Mike Hackman, Mike Nakajima, and Ralph
1: Green. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault. As a small business owner, you're juggling 100 balls in the air and don't have time to interview candidates who just aren't qualified for your role. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy for you to find the people you want to interview faster. And for free with LinkedIn, you can create a free job post in a matter of minutes, reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then add your job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. So your network can help you find the right people to hire LinkedIn has simple tools like screening questions that make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skill set and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview. This is why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash SBR. Again, that's linkedin.com slash SBR to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Now, here's Brian's interview with Mike Hackman from
1: November 2020. My guest is Mike Hackman. He is the president of Sports Strategies and Solutions, LLC. Mike and I have known each other for many, many years He worked at Nike and Jordan Brand for over two decades. Many of you know that I used to consult for Nike, uh, specifically Nike basketball. So Mike and I were on the road together and worked on a number of projects together. And I'm happy to have him joining me on Sports Business Radio for the first time. How are you, Mike?
2: I'm doing great. Doing great. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Always good to catch up with an old friend.
1: It is good. And, you know, we've gone to our coffees and and had our chats about the state of the industry and where it's going. And I wanted to bring you on because I think you've got some really interesting insight as someone who worked at Nike and Jordan for so long. And, you know, things are changing now. Uh, I've talked about this on our show, but I wanted to bring you on because I never was full time at Nike and wasn't there nearly as long as you are. So thanks for joining me today let's start with uh tell people how you started at nike long ago and and what your jobs were when you were there
2: well it's uh like everybody has their own their own kind of story own path there's a ton of people at nike that um you know kind of grew up or uh their goal was i have to work at nike i have to work at nike i was working at a uh, not-for-profit called the indiana sports corporation in indianapolis and uh, our role there was to market the city of Indianapolis to uh, the sports industry, amateur sports. And the Nike All-America Basketball Camp was one of my clients. So that's that was my that was my connection. I helped them, came up doing events, creating events, managing events. So I helped them with the uh, um, with the All-America Camp. And uh, a gentleman named uh, George Raveling, uh, former coach, uh, college coach, he uh, was running the camps at the time and brought me on because there was really no one at Nike at the time in basketball sports marketing who had any experience with events. They were doing events, they were sponsoring events, but there was no like rhyme or reason or strategy around it. And um, so George brought me on and uh, essentially it was my role for uh, really for years, what I did was kind of helped create platforms from a strategic point of view. Um, basketball sports market at Nike or sports market at Nike at the time, which was, uh, the really, uh, was, I guess, 97, 1997 was focused on uh, the elite, elite youth, the elite athlete. And, um, so I kind of looked at it as, uh, if you're an elite basketball player from the age of 14 to 19, what are Nike's touch points with you? Um, and we kind of created programming and morphed programming and sponsored events and did things, um, to give Nike, you know, kind of a touch and, and, um, the ability to market the brand, uh, to those, to that elite level player coach community. Um, uh, and so I did that for 18 years and it went from, uh, just running the all America camp to, uh, you know, all these events basically in the U S and around the world. And again, I think you bring up an important
1: point, you weren't marketing Nike to consumers. You were marketing Nike to the elite athlete. In this case, the elite basketball athlete, because wasn't Nike's goal with doing Nike All-America camp. Let's find the next Michael Jordan. Let's find the next LeBron James, even though that was one of the camps that we worked, where LeBron was at the camp for a little bit. So Nike was always looking for the next great endorser to sell product. And that was one of the big reasons you did these events. Am I correct in saying that?
2: Yes, uh, for sure. That that was that was one of them. But really, the impact of it in the um, uh, was as I as I said. And over the years, I'm really one of the only ones. Or I'm really the only one that I know that talks about this. But I I really believe it. The, um, yes, if you found LeBron, so we found uh, so LeBron came to the camp. What was that? Probably two thousand two, two thousand one. But so for five years, I. You know, it's, we have these camps, we have these events, and you're like, okay, if you're looking for the next guy. Uh, you know, we he didn't show up until LeBron did, right? So, um, the impact that that the when you focus on at the youth level, uh, the elite youth youth level is you're marketing the brand, like I said, to this community. So these kids grow up, and and you know, not only is Nike, uh, do they see a commercial on TV? Nike's a camp that brought them gave them a chance to play in front of all these college coaches gave them a chance to show what they can do in these different all-star games and no such thing. so for every one lebron there's hundreds of these other other players uh, and other kids that that got a you know, you know they got a big uh, you know they got a big opportunity uh to play on these platforms and um so they grow so they they identify as you know they want to be with nike because look what Nike's already done for them. Right. Um, and and then the, the also thing that, or the, another big thing that I think is really impactful is when we would bring together the young players from around the world, or um, whether it was Europe or uh, Africa, Asia, you know, wherever it was in the U.S. at that All-America camp, when you bring, that's the future of the game. So the future, the future of the game, the future NBA players, the future college players, when you bring them together, Uh, that piques the interest of every coach in the game, every scout in the game, every GM, um, the hoop summit is a great example of an event, uh, that I helped run for, uh, 15, 15, 16 years. And, um, you know, where once again, every NBA GM, uh, when you go to the the world team hoop summit practice and hoop summit is a game where USA basketball would pick a team of graduating high school seniors and nike would pick a team from around the world of players aged 19 and under um so you were bringing for every nba gm you were bringing these international players to the us and you know for a week of practice and having them watch that so there was tremendous power in when you um for nike uh when when we brought those those kids together
1: yeah and i mean isn't it funny now mike that, you know, we see a lot of the friendships that were formed at all America camp or on the AAU circuit. Now these guys want to play together, you know, when yep. they're in the NBA. So it, it's kind of interesting to see the seeds of those were planted during those uh, early years. And, and now we see them taking shape uh, as they're older in in the NBA.
2: And it was a very different world back then, too. And that's, that's, uh, you know, when you talk about how things are changing in the in the sports marketing world or how things are changing at Nike, the I'm talking 97, to, you know, the late nineties, the early two thousands, uh, the world wasn't as connected as it is now. So those, those platforms made a lot more sense then, uh, because, you know, there wasn't, you couldn't pick up your phone and, uh, follow a kid on, on Twitter or Instagram. Right. And see all of his highlights. Right. See the mixtape. So, uh, right. See the mixtape. But, <laughs> People had mixtapes, but you had to to get a VHS or a. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Someone sent you a DVD or or something like that. God, are we old? We're making ourselves sound really, really old. Um, So, the other thing I want to stress for the purpose of this conversation is you ran events not just domestically, but you were running events in Asia. And, you know, again, Nike is looking for Yao Ming and they're looking, they're scouring the planet trying to find the next great athlete endorser. So you were doing these events all over the world.
2: Yeah, since I think 98 was my first um, international camp, we did a camp in Treviso, Italy. And it was, uh, um, you know, the best players from the best players from Europe. And right around that time, uh, Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki had just played uh, in the Hoop Summit, basically single-handedly uh, won the Hoop Summit for the world team uh in and in, in 98 and then i went to the international camp in 98 and then um my second one was in barcelona in 99 and uh paul gasol was a 15 year old camper at that camp he was you know almost seven feet tall at 15 and um skinny as a rail but i came back it was quite clear that uh, these international guys could play uh and you know, we need to be out in front of this. So, yeah, we started doing more um, international camps. We started, uh, we did a partnership with uh, the NBA, Basketball Out Borders. Uh, I managed that relationship and managed those events for years. Um, so it was uh, amazing, amazing times, amazing career, and uh, very, very blessed to have uh, been able to experience it.
1: Remember when we saw Dirk Nowitzki for the first time? Was that Tampa? I think it was Tampa in 1998, the Hoop Summit. Am I right?
2: Uh, it was San Antonio. Okay. San Antonio. They trained in Dallas and, uh, and uh, the game was in San Antonio.
1: Yeah. But it is interesting how I always used to joke with people. I'm like, forget about the NBA scouts. If you want to know where the talent is coming from all over the world, ask the people at Nike. Because they've seen these people, these players up close. And, you know, I remember a lot of the scouts would come to the hoop summit and they'd be, who's Dirk, what? And, and who's pal, what? And they'd leave those events going, okay,
2: let's get this guy on our radar. We want to draft him. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, uh, once again, I mean, if, when you think about Nike, the, when you think about how Nike started, Phil Knight, uh with uh, selling shoes out of the trunk of his car and um, his first endorser was Steve Prefontaine, the great distance runner. Uh sports marketing, and when I say sports marketing at Nike, it's that's our job, our role was to be kind of ingrained in the sport industry in that category. If we were basketball sports marketing, our you know, you have you wanted to have the best relationships, the best information, the best everything. Um in the sport of basketball. so, uh, And that's kind of Nike's origins was to – we used to always say, listen to the voice of the athlete, right? So it was all about – it was more focused on the elite athlete. How do you make the elite athlete better? And then everyone else will follow the elite athlete. Um, Once again, the world was different then because we were all watching the same things. We were all following the same elite athletes. It wasn't as fractured and splintered as it is today. But um, the DNA of, of, of Nike was to, you know, how do you make athletes better? How do you solve problems for athletes? And that's um, so when you do that, then obviously, um, and then for us in basketball, anyways, when I started, it was very blessed. We were always the industry leader. So the, um, when we were at at one point, you know, you have 95, 96% market share, um, you can't really grow you know you you aren't going to fight over that that four or five six percent you you need to grow the game you need to grow and that was a large part of why we did things around the world as well was to try to with basketball without borders um with fiba we did a uh fiba 3x3 nike sponsors that or was a founding partner with that i worked with that uh because that was a way to try to get you know people in parts of the world that don't normally play basketball to play basketball
1: all right so fast forward to today 2020. Mm-hmm. And now John Donahoe is the CEO of Nike. He comes from eBay. E-commerce is very big for Nike now and a big emphasis. And the categories have been removed. So no more basketball, golf, football, baseball, tennis, running. It's now men's, women's, children. Those are the categories. Things are changing at Nike, Mike. And it seems like that emphasis on finding the next great athlete to endorse product for Nike, that focus has shifted.
2: It would appear so. And once again, I've, I've, I've been away for a year or uh, over a year, but uh, yes. um, I don't know when, when you go from, and we could back, we should back up when, when I started at Nike, the, the company was organized around product, right? It was footwear apparel equipment. And then around, I think 2006, 2007, something like that um, is when the categories came in and we, you know, it, it was hyper-focused on, on, on the sport and on the category. Sports marketing before the categories, when it was equipment and you know apparel footwear was product-based sports marketing at Nike, what we call sports marketing was still hyper-focused on the industry. So now that it's shifting to men's, women's and kids, I think there's still going to be some sports marketing, you know, focus obviously, because they're going to need some endorsers. Uh, the question is, you know, how, how deep does it go? Um, in my time there, we were in, engaged with the sport at all levels. Um, Cause it made sense. Cause that's what we were, that's what we were trying to, you know, that's what we were trying to get after. Um, now with the focus of men's, women's kids, um, I've never worked in an organization you know, that was organized that way. But, um, and once again, it, it's, it's, uh, the times have completely changed. What we did years ago doesn't make sense to do today. So this might be the exact right change at the exact right time. Um, I don't know. But uh, as far as the impact on sports marketing, they're still going to need endorsers. The question is, are they going go, to need as many? Are they going to go as deep? You know what's that, and then what does that mean for if you look at if you're an athlete coming up and you know a pro athlete, uh, if you're a college, if you're if, if if Nike's kind of getting out of the market or or dialing it back, um, so there's certainly going to be some impact down downstream. Well, so but, that's uh, right. And, and- it's hard for me to imagine being an old Nike dinosaur. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine uh, Nike completely getting away from from sports marketing, but uh doesn't appear that they'll need to go as deep and as, and as wide as we, as we once did.
1: Well, and it's been widely reported that there have been pretty sizable layoffs at Nike over the last couple months. And, you know, I know from talking to some people at Nike, they've lost their job in sports marketing and they've shared that the, the focus is shifting to e-commerce and, you know, less, Sports marketing. And if you're getting rid of these people who have been there for a long, long time and have those relationships with the athletes, it tells you something. So, you know, one of the things it would tell me is your job, as you've explained it, you were doing events and there was Nike All America Camp and you're doing hoop summits and, you know, events all over the globe. Well, now maybe there aren't as many events because now Nike's not looking for the next great athlete. And Mike, the way I've been explaining it to the audience here is I've got a 15 and a half year old daughter. And if she decides that going online and designing her favorite Nike shoe is more important to her than wearing that shoe because Alex Morgan or Serena Williams or LeBron or whoever wears the shoe. Well, that's kind of the mindset of today's consumer and then the other thing that we know especially coming out of this pandemic is that brick and mortar is not nearly going to be as common as as e-commerce right e-commerce is yep. less expensive you don't have to have the big nike town or pay the big rent at the brick and mortar so that's going to change too
2: no doubt no doubt and and you know uh you know the shift away from athletes started. Uh, I mean, this isn't a real abrupt. The the whole company being reorged this way, you know, is 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 different uh, for sure. But the move there's been a shift away from athletes uh, for Nike and for Jordan. Um, you know, it's been going on for a couple of years now. So, well, if you look on um, the social channels for Nike or Jordan, um, you know, a lot of times you don't you don't see athletes. You see influencers or, or models or it's more fashion. And that started, you know, um, years ago. So um, definitely a different time, definitely a different world. The one thing, Nike, like every major corporation or most most of the major corporations, they have all the data on their consumers. They have all the analytics. They run all the analytics. So um, obviously something's you know uh, telling them that, this is the right move at move at the right time and like i said it's uh, there's a lot of indications that that they're probably right
1: well and like i said earlier in the conversation and we've discussed if you bring in a guy who worked for ebay as your new ceo no, no. you know there's going to be uh, a heavier emphasis on e-commerce no doubt so no doubt. And, let me ask you this with Jordan brand, because I get asked this a lot, and you're you're much better to explain this than me. People ask me all the time, they go, what's the difference between Jordan and Nike? And I try and say, well, Jordan's its own standalone company. It's a partnership between Nike and Michael Jordan. But you worked for Jordan for a number of years, and you've worked directly with Michael Jordan. We'll get to that in a minute with his uh, flight school. But explain to people how the Jordan brand is structured.
2: Well, that's changed too recently. I mean, right before I left, but the, um, so Jordan started as a, you know, they had Michael Jordan, uh, signature shoe rewrote the business rewrote, you know, how things are done. Um, And it was, somebody had the idea to start the brand, right? So you're going to start a separate brand. So as a subsidiary of Nike, not a separate company, Um, obviously Jordan leans very heavily on Nike's, Uh, it would be hugely expensive when you talk about product development and uh, on that side of things. So uh, it's Jordan is a subsidiary of Nike and uh, for years it was run. It had a little bit more autonomy and ran a little bit separately. Um, As you know, everyone knows just wildly successful. Um, Just the, I'm so amazed. I'm every time, uh, the power of, of the jump man, the power of the power of the man himself, actually, um, you know, what, uh, the brand owes the majority of, you know, of its success to Michael himself. Um, just the phenomena of what he did on the court and, uh, that type of thing. But, uh, and then more recently, uh, as things were shifting at Nike, Nike, um, came in and, and, and started to have more um, more governance over the brand uh, than they had in the past, but it is a it isn't a separate company of Nike. It's a separate brand. So there's the Nike brand. Um, there's the Jordan brand, and then Nike bought Converse. Converse was a complete separate brand. Uh, so they had their own, all their own um, product development, all those things. Nike purchased Converse, so Converse is another brand. Um, so I do if that 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 cleared it up or not, but that's, that's my explanation.
1: Yeah, no, it, it does clear it up. And I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, it's not like Nike just says, Hey, Michael Jordan, you're an endorser for the Jordan brand and we're paying you X it's, it's more of a partnership. And then Michael yeah. gets to help have a say in who the younger, you know, more active elite athletes are of today that become endorsers for the Jordan brand. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Michael has input. In- definitely involved more than any endorser's ever been involved yeah and it is amazing i mean gosh
1: you know we watched the last dance this year and you know michael jordan hasn't played in years yet his shoe is still outselling most other shoes of of active players and you know we saw how many people tuned into the last dance he he really is a phenomenon
2: well and that's so that's a great example of I think in today's world being so connected and with all the social media that you can follow your favorite athlete, you know so much about them, um has made them so accessible uh and then in today's world where anybody can be a celebrity, right? Anybody can have a YouTube channel and anybody can can uh can you know have a certain level of uh, celebrity that I think it's kind of lessened the athlete, you know, uh, the athlete endorser where I th- to me, a big reason why this was so um, successful uh, was because Michael was finally accessible a little bit. There's always been a mystery with Michael. He always, you know, he always. Uh, it was always Michael Jordan. <laughs> you never really got a peek behind the curtain, and then you finally did. So uh, I thought it was it was a fantastic. Uh, when they first said, "How many episodes was it?" Was it ten? I think it was eight eight or 10, whatever it was, I was like, wow, what are they going to talk about? Right. And then, and then when you, once you see it, you're like, I wish that, you know, God, they left this out and that out and this out. They could have gone on and on and on.
1: Well, and I've mentioned on this show, I talked to someone at NBA Entertainment and they said they left 95% of the footage that they had on the cutting room floor. Like it didn't even air. So they have... A lot more footage that you know who knows maybe it's seen in the future or maybe we just never see it but we didn't see all of it by
2: any stretch no they they deserve i mean I thought it was so well done and deserve all the accolades and uh, that they get so um, and they did they you know, once again you know with Michael sitting there uh, having the reaction and talking that that's they people got to see uh, a little bit of, of of what Michael's really like
1: well, I'll tell you what, this year between his speech at Kobe Bryant's funeral and the last dance, I have gotten to see a side of Michael Jordan that I've never seen before and a human side that I'd never seen before. So I thought those two things alone, I mean, obviously very tragic that Kobe died, but his Getting up and, and you know, really getting emotional at Kobe's funeral. And then what we saw in the last dance, it was neat to see the human side of Michael Jordan.
2: Yeah. So yeah. you've seen the human agree. side
1: of of Michael Jordan. And, you know, like I said earlier, flight school. Explain to our listeners what flight school is. And then, you know, you ran that. So. It's a pretty special event that took place every year, and and explain to our listeners what that consisted of.
2: Well, um, it started with the off the concept of a baseball fantasy camp, right? You get uh, a bunch of old guys get out there and play baseball, and the old baseball um, alums, you know, greats come in, and uh, essentially, so that's what it was for basketball. So, um, my first camp, it started the first one ever was in let's see 97 I believe 98 was my first one and we did it for 12, I did it for 12 years and yeah I, I kind of directed the operations of it I was the operations guy um, but it was for people 35 and over um, they w- would spend basically about fifteen thousand dollars to uh, attend the camp spend the weekend uh, in Vegas with Michael and then a who's who of uh, basketball coaches whether it's uh, Mike Krzyzewski or Tom Izzo or Dean Smith, John Thompson, uh, Larry Brown, uh, Doc Rivers, you go down the, it was not, it was pro coaches, college coaches, and then always brought in amazing speakers. John, John Wooden, uh, Don Haskins, um, you know, Bill Walton, um, all kinds of luminaries from, from basketball. So the guys would come in and we'd put them through a basketball camp. So, You'd run them through drills you, we had skill sessions and uh you know and games and league championships and um, you know the skill sessions. we weren't necessarily trying to make these guys better basketball players it was how do you how do you connect them get them interacting with these with these great great coaches so it wasn't just a chance to meet hang out with michael jordan it was a chance to be coached by you know all these great college coaches and kind of the relationships that these guys built with them and um actually, a lot of the coaches uh started their own camps uh once they saw their own fantasy camps once they saw how how successful that one was so uh really really, really amazing events uh amazing memories, great friendships, and was very very blessed to be uh to be a part of it once again, George Raveling got me involved in that one as well. Didn't Jordan play in some of the games oh yeah well no he would he would play yeah Yes, he would. For a while there, he would jump in because this was '98, so he had just won his last championship. Um, So he would he would play, uh, come in and have some, you know, uh, jumping games. And then it got to be because to win the ring, to win the rings at this event, you wouldn't believe these guys diving on the floors. I mean, tearing (laughs) Achilles. They were doing anything to try to win this ring, and they'd come back year after year. Um, so when Michael would jump in the games, then it would kind of screw up the standings and all that. So then it got to be, well, he'll play, you know, one-on-one or two-on-two or three-on-three a little bit, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Michael was so, so, so great with people. He's got amazing people skills and, uh, makes everybody instantly feel comfortable and feel a part of it. Um, so yeah, it was great. And then you've told me,
1: too, that, you know, it wasn't just about the basketball. Like, they'd sit around and smoke the best cigars, and you'd have a steak dinner, and you'd drink some wine. So, you know, again, you're with some powerful CEOs and people who have paid a lot of money to not just learn basketball. They want to network with each other and, and socialize with the coaches and, and
2: everyone, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, a lot of different uh, business or a lot of different uh, opportunities came out of Came, uh, came out of it for sure didn't you tell me mark cuban went to that yeah cuban would come uh he'd come uh he came at least i'd say three years wow and damon this is wayans, like damon the actor uh, damon wayans came too and he actually filmed uh an episode of his he wrote it into uh i don't know the name of the series or forget the name of his series but he wrote into where he he you know got to play michael one-on-one because every year and Michael would do this. I'd been around Michael's kids' camps as well. He had um, had some camps uh, for kids as well. But Santa Barbara, he, right? Yeah, in Santa Barbara. So he'd play one on one at different times as part of his, you know, in front of the whole camp as part of his, as part of his talk talk with the camps. That's amazing.
1: So, all right, what is your best flight school story that you can tell? There's got to be. I mean, I hear stuff about Jordan all the time where you know he bets someone that he can make a shot blindfolded or whatever, but there's gotta be a good story, something memorable that you have from all those years.
2: Well, there's several, but the most memorable was, uh, was when Michael Jackson came to, uh, and wanted to say hello to Michael Jordan. So we were at Caesar's palace. This was probably 2000, maybe 2001, um, we're at Caesar's palace and there's the pavilion back there. And that's where we have the courts. And, um, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I run, I direct the operations of this. Right. So Michael's, uh, Michael Jordan is playing a three on three with, with some campers. And, um, the, uh, Michael or the security guard comes up to me and says, Michael Jackson's here. And he wants to say hello to Michael Jordan. You have to remember they did a, I think it was a Pepsi commercial together.
1: Well, and they so, did that so, video you know, jam. Remember that song jam? jam. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, sure. Sure. So he goes, Michael Jackson's here. And, uh, wants to say hello to Michael Jordan. And I said, really? Uh, Michael Jack, you know, the guy, with, and he's like, yeah, the guy with the gloves. So I said, okay, where is he? I said, he's up in his suite. And I kind of smiled because I was, okay, this, and, um, you know, this, this is going to be interesting. Is Michael Jordan going to go up to see Michael, Michael Jackson in his suite? So uh, we go over and um, tell, you know, Michael comes over from playing and say, Michael Jackson's here. And I wants to say hello. And Michael Jordan said, well, great. Tell him to come down. <laughs> and the security guard was like well i think and michael walked away so i told the security guard i said well you know if michael jackson wants to say hello he's got to come down so long story short 20 minutes later um the security guard comes up to me and says you know michael jackson's here I said really where is he because he he's in his suv right outside and i said well he's gonna have to come in if he wants to say hello to michael jordan so um Security guard leaves. I tell my friend, "Run! Run! Find your camera." This was back when your cell phone didn't have a camera. And um, all of a sudden, this the big garage door opens, and the you know the place is just it looks like a Michael Jackson video. Place just fills with light. And by at this time, there were five on five games going on everywhere. And so Hubie Brown's coaching, Gene Cady, Shostakovsky, you know Doc, all these people are coaching. And in comes michael jackson with his entourage and the whole place just stopped and um so the security guard i'm standing there i'm i'm as shocked as everybody else and security guard brings michael directly michael jackson directly to me i think he's he's, he's like here michael jackson this is michael michael's uh, you know i say hello
1: there's a lot of michaels here michael hackman michael
2: Michael jordan Michael michael jackson Yeah, said you're here to see Michael Jordan. Yeah, I'll you know walked them over, and they said hello. The the whole place just was you know, just uh, like I said, stopped, um, surrounded them, watched them. They had a nice little visit, and uh, I mean, you talk about good. two icons. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So uh, there was a lot of star power uh, there at, at, at that camp.
1: Did Michael yeah, Jackson take a it, it, shot or anything? Did he try and no, 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 no,
2: no. They just, they just talked a few minutes, but, uh, uh, you know, the crowd was kind of going, was kind of going crazy. So, but, you asked me my most memorable, that's definitely my most memorable, but, uh, yeah, like I said, very blessed to be a part of it.
1: Well, I'll tell you another thing that we saw, and I'm sure you remember this and I think about this all the time. So I think it was Washington, D.C. It was the Jordan Capital Classic, and it was one of the first times, maybe the first time, that Michael Jordan and LeBron James met because LeBron was playing in the Jordan Capital Classic. And I remember, you know, we'd bring everyone in, each of the teams, for pictures with Michael Jordan. And, you know, here comes – LeBron and everyone, you know, so hyped about LeBron and he's going to be the next Michael Jordan and blah, 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 blah. And here these two are taking a picture together and just watching them greet each other in the body language. That was a moment I'll never forget.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I think uh, CP3 was part of that game, too. He was.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he's great in his own right. but. You know the debate now is who's the greatest ever? Is it Michael sure. or is it LeBron? So that meeting really stood out to me. And God, LeBron was so young, and and Michael was at the end of his career.
2: Yeah, I think LeBron may have said hello to Michael um, when Michael was playing earlier than that. But uh, but uh, that was definitely definitely a big moment.
1: Well, and I remember, you know, that was the time we didn't have cameras on the cell phone still. But, you know, there were the news cameras and there were cameras like everyone was documenting that meeting. That was that was very well prepared for.
2: Yeah, we had a we had that was your job, right? Handling the media. So, yeah, you were a little you were a little busier that uh, that year than any other year. Oh, my
1: God. Ten times
2: times the media.
1: That was crazy that year. And wasn't I'm trying to think of the year because I remember one of the years uh, and this is on YouTube. And there was a show called ESPN the Life. And I'm in yeah. a van with Carmelo, JJ Reddick, Shavlick Randolph, and Amari Stoudemire. And we were I supposed remember. to go do a radio appearance. And the driver, I mean, we just get in the van. I don't know where we're going. And the driver has the address and everything. He drove us around for almost three hours. He got lost. Yeah. And this is before you had MapQuest on your iPhone and all that kind of stuff. So we're driving around, and these guys are like, "I'm gonna need an extra pair of shoes for this." And Carmelo is getting cramps, and so we have to stop at the gas station so he can jump out and stretch his legs. And but it was great for ESPN's cameras who were in the car with us because you know there was some drama here. This wasn't working out as planned. And but I remember that year because that whole ESPN the Life thing was going on.
2: All right. All right. Yeah. That was
1: funny. Yeah we have a, we have a lot of memories from our our times together. But, uh, yeah, it looks like it's, it's changing and, you know, I drive by the campus now and I see these buildings that look like spaceships, uh, the new Serena Williams building and the Sebastian co building and the Mike Krzyzewski building. And I mean, they're beautiful buildings, but I just think to myself, well, gosh, if they're reducing staff, (laughs) there's going to be a lot more room on campus now.
2: Yeah. Well, and with COVID and, uh, I think a lot of things are going to change. It's a, there's a friend of mine who's in uh, commercial real estate, and I asked him when all this started because of my, I had the exact same thought. Nike has all these buildings, and uh, now most people are going to work from home. But uh, uh, like he pointed out, they could, people are still going to need uh, – there will be fewer people, but they're going to need a lot more space. So, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Well, I appreciate you, uh,
1: you know, letting us know what you did while you were at Nike and the Jordan brand, and this shift is going to be interesting to watch. Like you said, it might make all the sense in the world, and this might be the way to do it going forward, but it's definitely different than how Nike has done it in the past and kind of what Nike was founded on with Phil Knight and, and Bill Bowerman. Um, I mentioned at the start of the conversation that you're now the president and founder of sports strategies and solutions. You've got great event experience. You've planned international stuff. I mean, you were just talking about you've, you You planned Michael Jordan flight school operationally and things like that. What are you doing now? And if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, how would they do that?
2: Well, I, yeah, I started the uh, this, uh, LLC uh, to consult it. basically how do I leverage my you know 30 years in the sports industry that's been really a very very unique uh, type of, type of experience but so it's not just the operations we uh, the events we talked a lot about that but I did a lot of brand marketing and uh, uh or worked a lot with brand marketing on the uh, on the Jordan brand side and those types of things so uh basically um I'm looking to help with uh business development in the uh, in the in the in the sports world uh brand development uh, creating marketing platforms that's what I do a lot of what I did at Nike. Uh, and then of course the event operations and those types of things. He, um, as an example, I'm currently helping a, um, uh, basketball s- uh, software company, uh, it expand globally, looking to set up some sales dis- distribution channels globally. So, um, those are the type of things that I'm, that I'm doing. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm loving every minute of it. It's, uh, working from home. Even if I was at Nike, I'd be working from home, but, uh, uh, enjoying the consulting part um so so far.
1: And if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh to utilize your expertise, how do they email you?
2: I think yeah, my email is Mike at sportsstrategies.org. Great. Well I would
1: highly recommend Mike. He is definitely an expert in, in what he does. And, uh, all my dealings with him over the years have been terrific. Definitely a pros pro. And, uh, you know, we've become good friends over the years too. So that's been fun. When you spend as much time on the road as we did, you can't help, but become friends. It was always fun to yeah. go on those road trips and go have dinners. And, uh, you know, we won't, know uh, each other. Yeah. And we, we won't, go into detail about the night that uh, I sang karaoke because uh, that somehow made its way onto the Nike voicemail system the next day but uh, <laughs> luckily there wasn't social media back then
2: that's
1: right alright that's <laughs> right, Mike Hackman president of Sports Strategies and Solutions LLC thanks so much this was a fun conversation
2: thanks Brian enjoyed it you're
1: listening to Sports Business Radio we'll be right back Hey everyone, Brian Berger here. You might have heard my conversation with Nate Checkets, the co-founder and CEO of Roan a few weeks ago on Sports Business Radio. If you missed it, definitely check it out. Roan is the new official menswear partner of Sports Business Radio. I love their product. I've been a fan for a long time. Did you know David Stern was one of their first investors? Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. Their entire line places emphasis on an active, balanced, and purpose-driven lifestyle. I'm wearing my spar joggers. I've got them in uh, heather gray. I've got them in navy. I've got my moleskin commuter slim pant. I've got my regular black commuter pant. I've got my dress shirts. So when I'm out in in in-person meetings, I have the nicer Roan product to wear. But most of the time, I'm working from home. And I've got my rain long sleeve gray Heather camo. I've got my rain long sleeve hoodies. I am wearing the shorts for workouts, the seven inch Mako shorts. So I'll tell you what, from top to bottom, whether it's casual or business wear, Roan has me covered. I know they're going to have you covered too. And Roan is offering sports business radio podcast listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to r h o n e. R-H-O-N-E.com and enter code SBR15 at checkout. Like Sports Business Radio 15, SBR15 at checkout. Receive 15% off your purchase. That's r h o n e. R-H-O-N-E.com and enter promo code SBR15 at checkout.
0: Now, here's Brian's interview with Mike Nakajima from June 2018.
1: My guest is a close friend, someone I've known for 20-plus years, Mike Nakajima. He was at Nike for 25-plus years. He worked in the tennis group. He was the director of tennis for U.S. sports marketing. Mike, it's been a long time since I've had you on Sports Business Radio. I actually haven't had you on Sports Business Radio when you were on in 2005 I had to run to the birth of my daughter, and my then partner Keith Foreman, interviewed you. So finally, after all these years, welcome <laughs> to Sports Business Radio. How are you?
3: Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I had forgotten about the fact that Sophia was born. Yeah, oh that, my goodness, was it
1: was 2005. 2005. Uh, it's been a long, long time. So let's get into your career because you've had an amazing career. You were at Nike, like I said, for 25 plus years. When you were there, you signed everyone from John McEnroe and Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. You've worked with Serena Williams, uh, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Maria Sharapova. Tell our audience just a little bit about your role there at Nike Tennis.
3: Well, I mean, mean, as far as John and Andre and those Pete Sampras are concerned, actually it was done by predecessor. I renewed their contract a couple different times. Uh, since then because John as you know I mean he started playing in the late 70s and uh Andre Agassi came in the you know probably early to mid 80s Sampras came on board in 94 so you know I was involved a little bit with that one um but you know what it was it was crazy because it was the heyday of tennis and you know we we were expected to be the best at every sport right and it's that's still no different at Nike after 30 years of being there I think it was you know that's never changed that has never changed and never, never will. I mean, it's, Nike's a destination for best athletes, you know, and we go after the best ones. And when, like for instance, in 94, our chairman basically told us to go get the best American tennis player. The best American tennis player happened to be the best player in the world. His name was Pete Sampras. We went after and uh, signed Pete. And obviously, you know, he's, he's won a few slams since then. So it was, that was definitely, um, a, a good sign for us. um, and then, you know, going, going to the future, Maria Sharpova, we signed her when she was 11 years old, and she could say six words in English, and first thing she tells, she tells me is that I don't like your socks. So those are <laughs> four or five right there. So, you know what? We've come a long way. Uh, Serena, you know, amazing career, 23 slams. Obviously, Roger, 20. And, you know, Rafa's not too far behind. So we're still, I shouldn't say we. They are still doing really well and uh, hopefully continue to do so. Tell
1: us a little bit about the scouting of tennis players. Tennis is an international sport, unlike some other sports where, you know, you're really just focused on the United States. This is a sport where you're scouring the planet for the best talent. How does a company like Nike do that?
3: You know, I mean, it used to be a much smaller scouting team, but we expanded our, our network, so to speak. So, when you know, when I was there, I managed... Counting for Asia, North America, and Australia. or Those are sort the of three areas where there was it was a hotbed. We had somebody else kind of keeping an eye on Latin America, and we had somebody who keep keeping an eye on Western Europe and somebody keeping an eye on Central Eastern Europe. So, yeah, you're on the road all the time, right? So tennis is a sport where you can play year-round. And tennis is a sport that you can watch any player just about any time of the year uh, of course, the main stages where we watch some of those kids are at the Grand Slams, but you got to realize that every manufacturer is at those Grand Slams. So you got to go to some of these places where there aren't many of our competitors. And for the longest time, we had an event called the Nike Junior Tour, which we've had for about a dozen years. And it's the best 12 and under 14 and under 12 tournament in the world. And we brought the best of the best, and we got to watch them literally under our nose, so to speak and decide you know which players are somebody worth signing because that's the sweet spot for us you know 11 12 13 14 Rafa signed with us when he was 12 years old and he's been with us ever since like i said Maria didn't go to play uh, Nike junior tour but we found her when she was 11 so we're go- you know we have to go young you know for the you know to fend off the the competitors
1: I know you can't go into specifics, even though you have left Nike, but when you're signing an elite player like a Serena or a Roger, what kind of deal do you have to give them? I'm assuming a multi-year deal. I'm assuming it's it's big money. I would think with some of the, the lesser players, you can just get away with giving them product, right?
2: Most of the pl- players that we get are
3: product only. That's really no different than NBA or NFL, right? Most of the, the athletes that we have, you know, we joke about, the, you know, not joke, but the fact that it's 20, 20% gets 80% of the money. Hmm. You know, that's the 20-80 kind of a thing. But once again, you know, we, you want these athletes to, to be with you to um, want to make sure that these guys love our product and they can wear the product, and we, to some of the top players, we cater our product to make sure that it fits them. It's a custom-made product for some of the top athletes, and we, as manufacturers, would always want a longer-term contract. The agent and the athlete potentially want a shorter-term contract, especially a young athlete coming up. We want to make sure that they're with us for a long time, but they want to make sure they have for a short amount of time, so when it's Two or three years versus a five years, they can renew the contract for higher numbers. We want to lock these players in. If we feel like these are players that we want to invest in, we want to make sure make sure to have them for four or five years, and that's important to us.
1: So you just talked about the players being involved with their product. I've read the stories about Serena, and obviously I've talked to you about this, but it seems like they want to have a, a pretty big say in what their product looks like, how it performs, you know, they're in the labs with the designers and and they're talking with you guys uh, when you were there about what that product needs to look like. It's not like just, hey, take my logo and stick it on a shoe and we'll call it good.
3: No, they have a lot of say, you know, especially the big four, you know, Roger, Rafa, Maria, Serena, they have a lot of say in what they wear. What they wear is a little bit different than what the rest of the, the group wears. So it's really down in like three tiers, right? So you got the top tiers, you got those four, and then you got the next tier down. And you get something a little bit special, a little bit different, but not recreating the wheel, so to speak. You know, guys like Juan Martín Del Potro, uh, you got Grigor Dimitrov, and you got you know Jeanie Bouchard, and you know some of those athletes will get a little bit slightly altered product. In other words, it's the same shirt, but it may get in a different color or, or a little bit different pattern. You may have a, a solid colored skirt or short versus, you know, a white. They make a, differentiate them a little bit different from the masses, right? Masses are the rest of the athletes that you know we they tell them this is your this is your outfit for this tournament. They have to wear it, so it, it is important. And they and the top athletes, we do speak with them often. You know, I would say you know maybe five or six times a year, and making sure that the product that we're making is something that they're gonna really look forward to wearing. Because at the end of the day they're the only one who's gonna be wearing it. They have to, they have to love the stuff. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times when, you know, they haven't loved the stuff. And you know what, sometimes it affects their play. You know, that's you know, they they are, you know, a bit superstitious in a sense that but I think it's no different than any of us. If we love what we're wearing, we tend to be happier. You know, we we tend to perform well in, you know, your work or in athletic activity and so forth. So it's no different than the athletes. You know, they have to love what they wear. And if that's the case, they tend to do a little bit better.
1: I want to dig in on a few topics with you. One, you know, you were close with Andre Agassi. And Andre Agassi was synonymous with Nike for many, many years. But then Andre left and went to Adidas. He's back at Nike, but I know for you personally, you have close relationships with these athletes that I've mentioned, McEnroe, Sampras, Agassi, Serena, Roger, Rafa, Maria. When Andre left for Adidas, how did that impact not only the the Nike-Adidas rivalry, but your relationship with Andre?
3: Yeah, it it is a little tough. It got a little tough. I mean, you, you know, without getting into too much detail... Um, Andre's been nothing but great to our company. And I feel like we've done the same thing with him, but sometimes, you know, uh, disagreements and and uh, sometimes things don't work out the way you want it to. And it's business, even though that it hurts. You know, um, at the end, uh, he, en- he did end up coming back. Um, and we still, you know, Nike still enjoys having him. You know, Nike tennis is really synonymous, you know, with Andre Agassi. You know, certainly without Andre and what he's done for not only what he wears on the core, but his, you know, his confidence, brash, you know, attitude. I think that really made who we are. That's really no different than John McEnroe doing the same thing. So when we did, you know, get him back, um, it was a happy times for Nike, even though that it was several years after he had stopped playing. But we still have a lot of history with Nike, you know, with Andre at Nike, you know, since 1985 to all the way to, you know, now, you know, we can use the history of what Andre wore for us. Whereas if he wasn't with us, we would have lost that. So, you know, you know, for us to really talk about the future, sometimes you have to talk about the past. And that allowed us to, to do that with Andre.
1: Maria Sharapova uh she's gone through some controversy of her own and you know I look at like Michael Vick and Nike decided to stick with Michael Vick. Vick was on our show a few weeks ago. Maria Sharapova went through the performance enhancing drug storyline and Nike chose to stick with her. When you have a situation like that knock and again I know you're not at Nike anymore but What's the conversation internally when you're deciding, do we keep this athlete aligned with our brand or do we cut ties with them?
3: Well, no, I think, you know, depending on the severity of it, we just felt, you know, at the time that you know, everybody makes mistakes, you know, and she's an important part of the Nike tennis business. And the tour is already penalizing her by not, you know, allowing her to play on the tour So I think we felt that, hey, you know, she paid her dues. Um, A lot of times when you take that much time off the tour, it helps, you know, helps clear your mind. And, you know, but at the same time, what makes it hard is for that athlete to come back and play at the level that you want to. You know, I'm not by all means comparing her to Tiger Woods, but he took a lot of time off because of what he what he's done. But also with injuries. Now he just can't get back to that level. And, you know, Maria's getting there. I think she's going to be there. I think she can win another slam, but it's going to take time. So it was a lot more than the, uh, the punishment that the tour gave her, you know, she's still trying to get back into the sink, getting back in the sink and be at the level that she's capable of because no one, you know, hates to lose more than Maria. And I know that this is eating her up, but you know what? She's this close. So I think she can come back again, but you know, Nike just felt that. Hey, listen. You know, everybody deserves second chances, and uh, it was a careless mistake. And we believe her, and you know, she's an honest person, is you know, and an amazing businesswoman. And like I said, we've known her for for many many years, so we decided to uh, to uh, get her another chance.
1: Yeah, that's got to factor in. Like you said, when you met her, she knew five words of of English, and you've seen her from the time where she was a teenager to what she is now. So I'm sure when you have a relationship like that, it it certainly factors in. All right. You and I are friends. We've been in the car together. You have so many great stories, but maybe the greatest one that I've ever heard you share that I'd like you to share with our audience right now is a story about Pete Sampras and Phil Knight around Phil Knight's retirement from Nike. And I'll let you fill in the rest, but it's an amazing story. So... Would you share it with our audience?
3: <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy to. Now that I love Nike, I guess I can, I can yeah, talk a little bit. Yeah, you can it. tell the truth. Um, no, listen, it wasn't so much that it was a lie or a truth or anything like that. It was a story that was a little bit more internal struggle that I went through. Um, as you know, every building that Nike has is named after an athlete. And rather than having a traditional ribbon-cutting ceremony, we always have a big event and have the athlete there, their families there, And this is really something that Nike really cherishes that moment. And, you know, Nike has now almost 50 buildings. But at the time, you know, Pete Sampras was given uh, a building that was named after him on the north campus. And this is something that uh, was important to Pete, certainly was important to, to the Nike and the Nike tennis category. And this happened, I believe it was, 2000, it was early 2000 is when I started talking to his agent about the event that is happening in August of 2000. And so when an athlete is given a building, in a lot of ways it's it's harder to get a building named after you than maybe potentially winning Wimbledon. Wimbledon, you work hard. You have a chance. Somebody has to name a building after you, it takes a little bit more than that. So this was important to the family, it was important to everybody that was involved. So we started working early in two thousand with regards to what can Pete give back to Phil Knight, right? So Phil Knight's giving you a building and at the ceremony he's gonna give you a big architectural rendering of the of the of the building that is signed and is framed. And it's just a really nice piece as a keepsake that, hey, you got a building named after you. And so the expectation is now, hey, Pete needs to give something back to Phil as a thank you. We started talking. We started talking. His agent suggested that we have a, they have a scroll of all the Wimbledon titles. He's won up to that point. He's won six at the time. And it was a beautiful, a scroll with calligraphy, beautiful writing, everybody he's beaten, the scores, and Pete would sign a special note to Phil, And I thought that was a perfect gift. And of course, that July, Pete wins his seventh Wimbledon, because now I'm calling his agent back saying, I can't give, you can't give him that because now it's an outdated gift. So he said, What do you want what do you want to give him? Like a nice sign racket or shoes? I said, No, listen, you know, we can give that to any you know, anyone can, you know, give that to, to to Phil.
2: And you certainly can
3: get that anywhere. So we couldn't think of um, we couldn't think of anything we couldn't so literally three weeks before I started to get a little worried because we didn't have a gift. And the whole you know, the whole thing just starting to unravel because that's the big piece about the the ceremony. We're going to put up stands right in front of the building. We're going to call it breakfast in Beaverton, just like it was breakfast at Wimbledon. A couple of British speaking vice presidents were sitting up there and make it look like a little bit more like Wimbledon. We laid down the tennis court. It was the worst tennis court I've ever seen in my life (laughs) just because it was done on cobblestones and we were supposed to have, Pat O'Brien, who way back when did the uh, some of the celebrity, um, some of the talk shows, and that. so we had it all set except for the gift. And what we wanted to do is, so I said, okay, this is what we're going to do: the last trophy at Wimbledon that you just that Pete just won. Can you just bring it for event's sake, just to you know, just to show that this is you know this is the present you're going to give. I'll give the, the trophy back to you. And we'll figure out something else to give to Phil. And we all talk about it and everything. We said, that's great, that's great, that's great. So the day of the event, uh, of course, I pick his parents up at the airport. His dad's got a little duffel bag that he's carrying with him. And as soon as he gets off the phone, he puts his duffel bag on top of this big garbage can and unzips it. And he pulls out this beach towel, and he says, "Here, Mike, I don't want to carry this anymore." And it's this Wimbledon trophy. <laughs> and okay, great. So I take I take the trophy home. I did not want to leave it in the office in case you know it gets taken or whatever. And I put it on the counter. And sure enough, next morning, the next day, I find out where is the trophy? It's not there. As it turned out, my oldest son Andrew, at the time, he is three years old. He had taken off with it. He was putting candy in it. And he was running around the house with it. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do that. So I'm getting ready to take take, take it. And as soon as I get in the car, the top of the trophy falls off. <laughs> and, and it's rolling down my driveway. And I get it. And I look at it. And if you look at the, the trophy, it's got beveled edges and this, this and that. And everything looks fine. But the inside lip has got a little dent on it. So now I'm in the garage trying to hammer out this, you know, little dent, you know, just, I didn't want to hit it hard because I didn't want to break it. It certainly hit a weak spot somehow that he had a dent. In it. Oh when my you God. Back, when he put the top back on, you can't really see it, but that's fine. Everything is fine. There's 3000 people at the event. Pete's family's there. We take a tour. Family's crying because it's so proud. Now we're doing this event and Phil gives him the nice picture, architectural uh, uh, design of the building, and he says, thank you. And he says, I have something for you, Phil. So I take the trophy out of the beach beach towel, and I give it to Pete. Pete says, Phil, this is my gift to you. This is a trophy I just won last month at Wimbledon, my seventh Wimbledon title. Here's a trophy. as a, my, my appreciation to you. And Phil gets it, starts kissing it. It's the greatest gift I've ever received in my life. And I go, that's great. That's awesome. So Phil gives me back the trophy. I wrap it up in a towel. I put it back in a bag, and everything else well else went great. Went uh, his parents went home. I gave the trophy back. Everything went great, perfect. Until two days later, I get a vo- voicemail on my uh, phone at work, and he says, Nakajima Philip Knight, where's my trophy? Give me a call.
2: <laughs>
3: and and I looked at my, my colleagues, and I said trophy so I immediately called the events department and I said listen guys you figure this out right I mean how come Phil's calling me about trophy and they said well we really didn't think that was really appropriate if we took it away from him so we didn't tell him oh god And I just I just sat there looked in space and I go you got to be kidding me so then I'm now at this point I'm starting to panic a little bit two days later I get another voicemail Nakajima you're ducking me call me so it's like now I'm figuring like I'm going to lose my job over this. you know, that's, that's the first thing that's going to happen. So of course, I called his agent, to explain the situation. He says, "Yeah, you're kind of in a pickle." I said, "Yes, I am." Huh. He says, why don't, "Why don't you call the executive director of Wimbledon? Maybe he can help?" And I really didn't know how he was going to help me, but I called him anyway. He was really sympathetic. He gets me in contact with the little old man in Wimbledon, who makes every one single one of these trophies. So I call this guy up. I I explain my situation. He says, no problem. I'll make you a trophy. She said, do you want your name on it? I go, no, no, no. I don't want my name on it. I want (laughs) Pete's name on it. He goes, do you want all the years he's won? He goes, no. I just want the exact same one that he just got last month at Wimbledon. He says, no problem. Minus the dance, right? Minus the dance. He says, no problem. I'll get to you probably five, six months. I said, I don't have five, six months. I don't have five, six days. (laughs) And I'm pleading to this guy, anyway, I'll pay extra to get this done ASAP. And first of all, he's quoted me a price of 1,200 pounds, which I thought was very inexpensive considering that was my job, but also the fact that it was a Wimbledon trophy and the fact that he was willing to make this for me and he doesn't know me from Adam. So sure enough, I convinced him to drop everything and make this, and he promised me to get it within two weeks. I had to fend off Phil Knight for two weeks. I had to avoid cafeterias. I had to avoid walking, you know, to buildings and buildings. Because I, sure enough, I had another building. he had probably given up on me already by then. And sure enough, in about a week and a half, I get this crate in the mail, and it's nicely wrapped. It's a wooden crate. I get it. I open up the trophy. Now I call his agent, Pete's agent, and asked, hey, listen, if Pete ever found out or if Phil ever found out that he had a replica trophy, I think he'd be really bummed. Pete's got seven of these. Would you mind, you know, exchanging this so he'd take this replica? Even though it's an identical trophy, I'm sure Pete wouldn't mind, and Pete said it was fine. So I ended up sending one of my guys down to L.A., and exchanged the trophy, brought the trophy up, and he gave it to me. Put it on my desk. I opened the lid. Sure enough, he had the li- the, uh, the stent on the lip, And I walked it, and I walked it to Phil Knight's office. Who do I see right off the bat? It's Phil Knight, just making a beeline towards me. And he goes he starts berating he's like, "What did you do with my trophy? You must have taken on a tour and blah 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 blah, blah. I said, listen, it doesn't matter how, but I got it, here it is. <laughs> And he starts kissing the trophy And says, yeah still the best gift I've ever received And he walked out that's the last I saw him for a while and I saved my job.
1: Oh my so um, here here's the question what a what an outstanding story. But does Pete Sampras and Phil Knight know that each of them has the seventh Wimbledon Championship Trophy? Do they know there are duplicates?
3: Yeah, no. Pete knows because I had to get his okay to exchange it. Okay. Phil but, doesn't know. He will now. Two, but, but no. But, no but, but Phil has the original. He has the original.
1: Okay, so, so Pete has the replica.
3: Now, also too, you got to realize that Pete's uh, coach passed away several years ago, and I believe Pete, you know, buried one or two of those trophies with him,
2: and wow. Wimbledon
3: was able to make him replicas, all that to replace it. Wow! So, so I mean, that meant that much to, to 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 him. So, I mean, they're identical trophies; they're made by the same guy. It's not like they crank him out and you know, there's a bunch of them out there, kind of a thing. They're just certainly one of a kind but uh yeah no it was uh, it was interesting times
1: with serena i know you're close to her inner circle um i know that there's the bean serena doc on hbo right now give our audience a little insight into serena too because she's a pretty amazing person as well from what you tell me
3: no she is i mean i think not many people get to know her you know um and that's a little bit what's what was wrong with tennis, American tennis back then is American tennis players became huge, right? If you're moderately successful, you're huge. In a sense that US loves heroes. Right? Americans love heroes. And not that the rest of the world don't, but uh she, you know, she came and played her match and left. And so did Venus and so did Andre and so did Pete. And those guys came and left. They were really never, you know, together that much. So you never really got a chance to know them. But more times than not, you know, I've learned, you know, more and more about her. You know, I spent a lot of, you know, times in in the car. One time I was at Wimbledon a couple of years ago, and we had an event way on the other side of Wimbledon, and on the way back, I had to get some certain images approved so we can post it right away, and, and Serena, you know, being in time in the car with Serena, I told our events group, I've got probably half an hour, 45 minutes, well, for undivided attention, crank out some photos, send it to me. I could get it approved right on the spot. And, of course, the the photos weren't coming. Photos were coming, and Serena and I were talking. And then she, one time she said, so, do you like shopping? I said, well, I mean, uh, I don't like shopping, but I I do it. You know, she goes, do you want to go shopping? (laughs) And I said, do I want to go shopping? Like, where? He goes, let's go Central London. Oh, okay, and I'm in my mind thinking I've got more time with her to prove all these images. Sure enough, so we, you know, we make, you know, we ask the driver to, to take us to Harrods of all things, all places in central London, and then all of a sudden she gets a phone call from so and so and says, Yeah, I'll be there, I'll be there. Yeah, oh, you there too? And all of a sudden he goes, Hey, sorry, before we go to Harrods, I got to meet a friend. Okay, no problem. Sure enough, you know, we get to pull up the hair. She goes, where are you? Oh, we're parked right behind you. Sure enough, she gets out of the car. The woman in front of her gets out of the car. Well, it wasn't just a, just another friend. It was Kim Kardashian.
4: Oh, geez. They're in
3: their street just talking in central London, and it does not take more than five seconds before 150 people are now surrounding those two, and I completely lose her. You know, and then until she finally just ducks into the Herods, and I follow her in and she's asking me, you know, which, you know, high heels, which Jimmy Choo high heels I like. And, 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 Serena, listen, you're asking the wrong person. I don't go looking for Jimmy Choo high heels. <laughs> but she's one of those people that uh, really, really, you know, is super kind, super, you know, conscientious of others. And uh, you know, when you get to know her at the time, obviously she didn't have the baby, she didn't have you know a husband. And oftentimes, you know, um, I tell her it's like, man, you got a pretty good life, and she says, you know what? But you're married, when you have kids. I go, well, what do you mean? Because I'm not, ma- I'm not even married, Mike. He says, I'm not married, and I want to have, I want to have a family. And those are the times when you really think about, you know. N- all the money in the world can't buy you happiness and you know it's so i'm happy for her because she's got that now i think now her life is complete in a Mm. sense that she's got 23 grand slams right she's got you know she's got an unbelievably cool husband and a beautiful little daughter and now it's come full circle look at roger's got two sets of twins right i mean now, when you have a family on top of your work, and you know now work becomes a little bit more hobbyish because you you become a full time parent, you know it tells you that hey you 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 come full circle and you're now for whatever or lack of a better term you're complete. And I'm happy for her because she's an amazing person. And and I, when I left, I told her you don't have to play tennis because she had to, she was taking time off what, awaiting the birth of her daughter. I told her you don't have to. You don't have to prove to anybody. If you're going to come back to play tennis after the birth of your child, do it for yourself, not for the media, not for your sponsors, not for anybody else. Do it for you. You know, if you want to do it, then do it. You know. And she says, "I want to be the best." I go, "Who's?" No one's going to argue that you're. Already, you know, you're not the best. And she says, "Well, Margaret Court has 24 slams." I go, listen, Margaret Court played a million years ago when the draw was much smaller and, you it, you know, included amateurs. It's a little different. There's 127 other players in the field when you play. So I really, you know, feel that she now she's doing this a lot more for herself. She certainly wants to prove to the world that she can be number one in the world. And even though she struggled a little bit, you know, at the French, um, she'll be back. I mean, she's going to be playing Wimbledon and she's going to play U.S. Open and she'll be the greatest ever. And then, you know, when she wins, you know, another one or two more slams, there'll be no argument who's the best.
1: I love in the uh, Bean Serena doc that in her daughter's room, she's got the, what is it, 2017 Australian Open trophy in there because she says that we won this together because she was pregnant with her daughter when She won the Australian Open. Roger Federer is someone that you know well. You know, I've watched a lot of tennis, not nearly as much as you, but for my money, he's the greatest men's player that I've ever seen. Is there a story with Roger that stands out in your mind from all your time with him?
3: Well, Roger, you know, once again, when he was single, I've met, I think, Roger in 94, 95 He was just coming out of juniors, uh, really, really talented player, but super fiery, right? He'd smash rackets in a heartbeat, you know, And, and he wasn't the Roger Federer that we all know. And I asked Roger one day, first of all, you know, that when that changed, you know, from being a little bit of a brat on the court to, you know, that someone that everybody loves, right? There's not one person that I know that says, you know what, that, Roger Federer guy. I hate the guy. No one's ever said that, you know? So, and he asked it, you know, I asked him what happened and he says, you know what, when I was just coming out to play pros, there's a guy named Murat Safin, Russian player, one Australian Open, U.S. Open. And he was one of those guys who Roger was competing with in one of his final junior events. And it was in the finals. It was a long anticipated match to see who's the best junior in the world. And, Roger ended up winning in three sets. He came home and watched the highlights on on the on TV, and he said, "All they showed was Marat and I being bad boys on the court, yelling, screaming, smashing, throwing things. That was the highlight, not the great shots that they hit, not the fact that Roger ended up winning. That was almost took like a backseat to." the antics that were on the court, and Roger said it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever said had done, and he said he vowed that he would never do that again and he hasn't since then hmm. and uh, he says, unfortunately my friend Marat was still doing it. He retired from tennis a few years back, but you know, I mean, everybody can change and be better, and, and Rogers certainly has done that. He's one of those guys, once again, when he was not, you know, married and didn't have kids and all that, he would come to our Nike house in Wimbledon. He would literally walk from the courts to our house, knock on the door. We'll all be watching TV or whatever. He goes, hey, hey, do you mind if I just uh, come over here and make a sandwich and uh, sit down and watch TV with you guys? And I go, sure, whatever. <laughs> so he said, hey, Roger, you want me to make you a sandwich? No, 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 I got this. And he just opens the fridge and just takes out all the stuff, making the sandwich. He puts it on a plate and he sits down. And at the time, we were just watching TV on this little tiny TV must have been like a 12-inch screen. And because it was convenient, it was near the kitchen, we had a bigger TV on the other side. And I said, Rod, you can watch TV. Goes, no, no, no. So he would sit right next to us and watch like, all, like eight of us watch Wimbledon highlights on this little tiny TV. And we would spend the afternoon in between his rain delays until he finds out he's got to go back. He will go back, you know. So he's never changed. You know, back in the day when he was a great kid, when we got to know him to now, that's never changed. When he asked an hour out of his time, he'll give you three. You know, he can talk to uh, a kid just as well as he can talk to an adult. You know, he knows the audience, he says all the right things. You know, he's super nice to everybody. One time he came to Nike and he literally. Uh, he went from uh, designs to development and, you know, everybody's showing him how his shoes are made. And he walked out of the building and all of a sudden he realized that he didn't thank so-and-so who was making one of his shoes. So literally ran back all the way back into the building, all the way downstairs, just to shake the guy's hand and say, thank you wow. for making my shoes. You know, you don't see that from world-class athletes. And that's why, Several years ago, we created Roger Federer Day on Nike Campus, and when every building name was changed to Roger Federer Building, and we literally made a day of it. Where normally, when an athlete that big comes to Nike, everybody caters to him, right? Well, guess what? That day, Roger catered to us. So the very first thing we did was want to show him his new TV spot, and there's like 30 of the marketing people in this one big room, they we're going to debut. Roger came in with coffee and donuts for everybody, you know, pushing a cart with the coffee machine and donuts and, and passed out coffees, everybody. Then after that, he taught a fitness course at one of the gyms and he was passing out RF monogram towels to every person that come out to work out in the gym. He taught a class of how he trains for tournaments. And then during lunch, what we did was, he got he got behind a, the coffee bar making, a, he was a barista making coffees for everybody. When that was done, he was passing out box lunches to anybody and he would say, Hello, my name is Roger Federer, and shake everybody's hands in the cafeteria. Then he walks over to the cashier and everybody who stood in Roger Federer's ca- cashier line got a free lunch. And then we literally, and they he played we with, you know, we tennis with some of the employees, and at the end we had a big event with Phil Knight, and we gave away four ticket, no two tickets, for each of the four slams for the following year. And for him, it was watch me win, and that was an amazing day. And not everybody can do that. Meaning, you can't just get any athlete and put him in that same position with Roger and expect him to do well with different people. And Roger was way into it and that's the kind of person he is, then you know what? He will never change, and I hope he never does.
1: That's so awesome. What a great, great story. And you're right. There's very few athletes who could do that. Uh, We've got a few minutes left. Maybe the most uh, bombastic athlete that sports has ever seen and and one of the – The early athletes that Nike signed and and someone we've had on this show, thanks to you, John McEnroe. (laughs) We could probably do a whole separate podcast on just the stories you have with Mac, but is there one story that you have with Mac that you can share?
3: John and I, in fact, I just spoke to John yesterday in length about a project that we're doing together, but uh, John and I, obviously, he's a fiery guy, right? So he's always a commentator for US Open and And uh one time I was we're trying to create his product line of product named after him. And our product guys were dragging their feet, dragging their feet. And of course every time I'd see John, he'd ask me about it, I have to make up some kind of an excuse, say, Hey, listen, they're still working on it. And they are work they were working on it. It's just that they were just taking so long. And one time I had to ask John for a favor in New York, right after a broadcast of a men's match. So we went to find him in the broadcast booth. As soon as he got out, he was in the suite. And before that, my, my boss at the time, her name's Sonia, and she says, hey, you know, she, she was in. she said, hey, Mike, where are you going? I oh, I need to talk to John. He goes, oh, my gosh, can I meet John? And he's one of my all-time favorites. I go, of course, come with me. You can meet John. So we go in. He had just got down a long match. You can tell he was not in that great of a mood. So, but anyway, I, hey John, hey, hey, listen, I want you to meet someone. It's my boss, Sonia. John, oh, pleasure meeting you, blah blah blah. And then he immediately goes on a tirade, and, it John, <laughs> and John just hammers me on this and that. Where's you know? And I, I didn't even get a chance to ask him the reason I was there for. Him. And John was like screaming at me, and and then afterwards uh, he. He turns around, he slams his racket on the carpet floor, and literally I mean, ball, I mean, the, the racket bounced almost eye level to me. That's how hard he slammed it. And then he went around the corner, started changing clothes, and I said, John, um, I'm not going to listen to this right now. I'm leaving. So I, we left. And then I apologized to Sonia. Yeah, I'm so sorry you had to see that. And she looked at me like, are you kidding? I just got to see John at his best at your expense. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that was the best. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you enjoyed that. It's like I have to take that from John every other time. But the funny part is the next day, I'm going walking down the stairs in the, in, at the U.S. Open. And lo and behold, who's comes on the other end? John. And I'm still pissed off at John for what he did yesterday. And uh, so I wasn't even going to talk. Now I was going to walk right past him. And he goes, hey, Mike, what's going on? You guys, you doing all right? Like, we should catch over and do some dinner sometime. And I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me? You just screamed at me for I don't know how long yet I had to walk out of there. I didn't even say goodbye to you. And now you're asking me, what, should you do dinner sometime? And I'm just shaking my head. I "Go Sure, John, <laughs> we'll figure it out. And he walked off, But he's one of those guys that doesn't hold a grudge. Right, he got his he got it off his chest. He's completely fine, and hey, life goes on. So, John and I are always like that. So, but you know what, we like each other enough that hey, we're doing a little project together, like I said, and uh, you know, it should be it should be good.
1: Yeah. Before we wrap, let's talk about some of the things you're doing now. I know you're an instructor, a teacher at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. I was lucky enough to be a, a guest speaker in your class this term. I know you're doing some consulting, uh, and I know that you've gotten to spend more time with your family, because when you have the job as director of tennis for U.S. Sports Marketing, you're at all the grand slams, and you miss a lot of time with your family. So how are you enjoying your career now?
3: I think that one of the things that, you know, when you realize you do certain things for so, so long is that, you, you miss being home, you know, tennis, nothing happens in Portland, Oregon. So every time something happens in tennis, you got to get on a, on a plane, right? You know, at the most, you know, I was traveling probably 25 weeks out of the year. And when that happens, when you miss out on the first, you know, first um, steps, first words, first days of school, you can't get those days back, you know? And like I said, I did this for almost 30 years. And for me, it's just spending time with family is that much? It's become that much more important. My oldest son just graduated from college. My middle son just graduated from high school. And then my youngest son just graduated from middle school into now high school. So life's passing me by. There wasn't a thing that I wanted to do at Nike in my group that I wanted to do it again. And, you know, I've done everything that I wanted to do. So it's time. I love a lot of the people that work at Nike. I love a lot of the athletes that I work with. But it's time. You know, you always think about what What if I, could, I want to do this, I want to do that and that, that never gave me an opportunity until now. So, I'm enjoying spending time with family. My office is downstairs. And not to mention the fact that, you know, I don't have to travel as much. Hey, guess what? I got to go see my, both my boys, you know, the oldest two boys graduate, which if I would have been my previous job, I would have been at, in Paris for the French Open. I would have missed it. So, no regrets. I enjoy, you know, doing other things and and teaching was just another one of those things that I never thought I'd do because I don't have a teaching background, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not sure I'll do it again because they're trying to hire, a full-time instructors, and that's not what I want to do. I want to do different things, part-time, you know, for different companies, and I, I'm and I enjoy it a lot, you know. So, wish me luck.
1: You don't need luck. You are very good at what you do, my friend, and you're terrific at building relationships. You've built great relationships with some of the top athletes in the world. I'm glad to call you a, a longtime friend we met what, back in 1995 at the Nike tennis, uh, Nike Cup Tennis event at what was the Rose Garden, now the Moda Center, and we've been friends ever since. So I've wanted to do this for a long time. I appreciate you sharing some great stories on our show this week, and uh, I know that we'll uh, catch up soon because we're both in Portland.
3: Oh man, thank you, Brian. Both Brian, thanks for having me. Enjoy the conversation, and I'm sure here I'll be hearing from some of my friends at Nike. You said what? <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, like I said, I don't work there anymore, right?
1: That's right. There's, there's, uh, you know, you got to tell some great stories today, and I appreciate you sharing those. That's Mike Nakajima. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. I am on my Underdog Fantasy app every night underdog fantasy is the official gaming partner of sports business radio it's the fastest growing fantasy app ever released with investors that include mark cuban kevin durant adam schefter jared goff and many more the underdog fantasy app is available at underdogfantasy.com on ios or on android i love it i play a lot of pick'em. I do rivals. There's best ball. It makes watching the games a lot more fun. So we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. New users can get up to $100 matched on their first deposit when they use the code SBR. So download the app at underdogfantasy.com and then enter the promo code SBR to get up to $100 to play with.
0: Now, here's Brian's interview with Ralph Green from July 2018.
1: Well, this is a lot of fun for me Uh in studio because we both live in Portland is my longtime friend, Ralph Green, who blast from the past. Yeah. You worked at Nike for 21 years, football, basketball. You're doing your own thing now. Columbia Consulting Group, yep. LLC.com. We'll get into that. but. Yep. It's been a while since we've seen each other. <laughs> you, you haven't know,
4: changed a bit, me.
1: Well, you haven't changed either. And, you know, for people who are listening who may not know, I did some consulting for Nike for almost 10 years. So, yes. you know, I'd see you on the road at football events, at basketball events, and it was always fun. Yeah. Uh, you have great relationships with athletes. That's one of the things that I always paid attention to is whether it was Michael Vick or LeBron or Tiger, whoever it was, you know, you develop really good uh relationships with them. They're gold but-
4: relationships are gold. Yes, that's the, they teach you that there. But also too, you know, like this was a small town when you and I were yeah first getting started. So it's kind of hard not to know everybody, you know. And you ever had Brian Grant um, as one of your guys, and he was my neighbor just out the back of my uh, the back of the deck. So we spent a lot of time <laughs> together, and I think that's probably how we first met. But yeah, I mean, I think that. um you know, it's just like anything else. Things change, but that part doesn't. You know, it's all about the relationships, and I've been lucky enough to keep a lot of those relationships as uh, I've moved to different places in my career. You, it's funny when you say twenty one years have just hit me. I'm like, man, I might be, I might be old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I normally don't think of myself that way, but it might be the case.
1: So you went to Stanford, then you went to Columbia University School of Business. Yes. And I know you did some other things before you got to Nike. One of which was you worked with uh, Hakeem the Dream. Yeah, Hakeem yeah, the Dream. How did you guys hook up?
4: Well, yeah, that cra- crazy story. It, um, I was working uh, as a um, an agent, a part of a larger agency in in the on the East Coast, and I uh, happened to have an old coworker who happened to travel to Vancouver and bumped into a guy who was in the real estate who had connections in Nigeria who knew Akeem's brother. I mean, it's a real domino type of thing, but... And ended up coming back. Akeem was leaving his current representation and asked me to get involved. And we, we picked the right window. It was the two years that MJ wasn't
1: playing. Okay. <laughs>
4: and so we, um, you know, and Akeem will always say, brother Ralph, we would have beaten him anyway. But you know, and, and it is true head to head. They, I think the Rockets had a good, um, record against the Bulls back then when Michael was playing, but the two years he happened to be out were the two years that, that we kind of popped in and started working with Dream. And, and of course, we won, two beating the Knicks uh, the first year and beating the sweeping Orlando with rookie Shaquille O'Neal the second year. So um, that was fun. And then I came to Nike.
1: <laughs> the whole athlete representation thing has changed a lot. And, you know, again, you were on the road. You saw players from the time they were young to when they became pros. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Building those relationships. So either A, they want to sign at Nike, or B, in the case of Akeem, they want to work with you personally.
4: Yeah. You know, I mean I think that um the thing that's changed is I I think the players have really done um put a lot of effort in trying to balance things out. I mean in in when you know, I'm a little older than you, so when I came up and went to college in in the in the seventies you know, things were really tilted in the ownership's favor and agents. Um, you know, there used to be teams that didn't even allow you to have an agent, you know, which is mm. a lot of people don't know. Um, and, and so that they're just trying to kind of bring that balance of power back, uh, and into a little bit more of an equal footing. And so I've sort of seen that over the years. And, and sometimes the pendulum swings too far. I mean, I've seen, Guys come in whether it's I'm working with them personally or when we were at Nike, same thing. They'd come with so much organization and and agenda and so on um, because they want to take control of their own destiny and not just be sort of dictated to by a shoe company by a ownership group or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it, it, the negotiations take on a different, you know, it's different when you sit with just a kid who's just wide eyed and thinking, gosh, what do I do next? You know, do I sh- sign a shoe contract? Do I go to a college? Do I go to a team versus sitting down with an entire group of lawyers and, 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 and they have their own logo and their team, whoever, whoever. And you know, you're like, you're dealing with another company almost. And that's kind of, you know, it's everything in between. But the thing that's got to be constant is the relationship. You try to get the relationship with the athlete and know, let them know, hey, we're here to make your, number one, your job on the court, field, track, whatever, better. And then number two, you know, whatever you can get from that, glean from that, you know, sort of extend and carry through your life. So again, it falls back on relationships. It's just, you know, how you do it now is maybe a little more complicated.
1: The athlete is business person. I feel like MJ really laid out the blueprint uh, with David Falk, his agent, then Tiger, and, and Tiger signed a big deal with Nike, and a, a lot of people were like, wow, Nike signing Tiger to that deal before he's ever teed it up professionally, that's a lot of money to pay him, and is golf something that can move the needle, and then LeBron comes along, and I feel like LeBron has changed the MJ blueprint, and now you see a lot of athletes who are partners in their own business and want equity in their business versus, Hey, just pay me money.
4: Well, yeah, I think a uh, very good point, B. I think that the difference, um, if there is one between MJ, I mean, MJ now is old enough where he's got to be an independent businessman. A lot of what he does is not going to be connected to him playing basketball anymore. Although that brand is very strong and, and is super big. I mean, it's bigger than LeBron's business. It's a, it's a, it's a, a standalone company, you know, brand Jordan would be a standalone company. Um, mm-hmm. I think what's different now, what LeBron has done and what players I've seen, in particularly in my role now as consultant in the technology space, players are coming in as business people off of the rip. They're not, well, let me get the shoe company and build my shoe and then my clothing line. Because anyway, that's sort of old school and it doesn't really work like that anyway anymore. And and it didn't even work as much for LeBron. I mean, that, that's he's got a good business, but it's not Brand Jordan. So... What happens is is LeBron's built an empire that does a lot of different things now. You know, right, he's a media guy. He's he's uh, investing. He's got a great um, philanthropy piece. I mean, he's you know very much a corporate sort of individual, even more so than MJ at the same point in his career. So, um, I think that's sort of the flip. And now you see guys, particularly in basketball. Save a little more money. Um, you know, doing things like having tech summits and real estate consortiums, right. and VC funds. I mean, this is the world I'm in now where I, you know, I'll go to a, you know, we have a small startup VC. Well, how much money did you raise? Well, I got 25 million. There's three NBA guys behind it. Oh, wow. They, you know, they're into that now. And that's sort of the, the new breed of businessman coming out of professional sports or businesswoman as well. Um, so that part's pretty cool, but it's still, relationships i mean at the end of the day you got to sit at the table and the first thing you talk about is hey how you feeling how your knees great game last night i mean if it doesn't start there you get nowhere
1: it's interesting uh, i had rich Kleiman who works with kd kevin durant on the show a few months ago and you know i i really look at uh that is kind of one of the models now. So, like, he's Kevin's partner on business deals. They're getting the creme de la creme VC deals brought to them. Does KD want in on Postmates or does he want in on, you know, some of these other things that he's interested in? But not every athlete has those opportunities. Some of the B and C list athletes, they may never be brought in on a, a VC deal. So, you know, they're all trying to make their – their money lasts as long as yeah. possible. How do they do that?
4: Well, I mean, I think that, as you said, not all athletes get the the A in, in uh, so deals from VCs and so on. That is true, but it, it is sort of a two-way street. It's kind of like, you know, the way I advise young athletes when they're looking at going to go into college, they're, you know, There are a lot of colleges that have football teams, not just D1. There are a lot of investment opportunities out there, not just coming out of the big venture, have Excel ventures and people like that, um, uh, out of the Bay Area. You'd be surprised how much economic opportunities out there. Um, and a, you know, an average, if I could say that, MBA salary, which is way more than I know I make so prob- probably you too. <laughs> yeah, a lot more. Yeah, so you got, That's <laughs> than confirmed. Then, then um, you know, there's pl- there's things for you to do. I mean, you you may not um, get the immediate phone recognition, but you can if you have the right people working with you. You can find those opportunities and put yourself in situations so that whatever duration your pro career has, you can you know you can reap the benefits on on the business side. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. But I will admit the marquee guys. A, a certain segment of them um, are definitely putting themselves out. Uh, you may have read last last August, um, uh, Steph Curry and Iguodala and the boys from the Warriors—they actually get a little, the, the little tour bus and go around Silicon Valley, and you know, I mean, everybody wants to meet with them. Right? I mean, who who who's not going to want to meet with those right. guys? Right? So, um you know, that's that that's it is. But if you're, you know, the tenth man on the Warriors bench. There's something out there for you too. You just gotta, you know, be able to get with the right people, and you can find it.
1: Yeah, JaVale McGee's got his YouTube channel on KD's YouTube channel, so you know he's doing interviews from a parking lot, yeah. and uh, hey, he's doing fine with it's that. It's
4: doing great. There's no question about it.
1: And you look at like, uh, you know, I love the road trip and podcast with Richard Jefferson and Channing awesome. Fry. So you know they were part of LeBron's team and kind of played in his shadow, but they took advantage of the access they had to some pretty interesting people and. Put together a pretty good podcast well the thing that's interesting
4: social media allows um you know the, the saying goes all politics are local and what that means is you know that there's a broad celebrity is a broad thing but appeal is very individual so with social media you could have um, i mean just about any player develop a deep enough base and then from that base you can provide content to them and, and it could be quite self-sustaining. I mean, that's sort of the Channing Fry thing. I mean, I just saw Jerry Jeffries' fishing show um, on the way. And the only reason I knew that is I worked with good old Warren Sapp. He's a fisherman, diner, all that kind of stuff. So I'm like into the outdoor thing looking. You know, I'm like, where did that come from? I mean, but that show is really, really good it's modern fishing with Jerry Jeffries. Great deal. It leverages this social, has advertising around it, product around it, travels around the world. You know, you mean it's it's not um, maybe as high end and as 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 well known as LeBron stuff, but he's doing pretty well for himself, and he's and he's cared for his family and provided coming off the basketball. I don't know long, how long he's been out of the game, but it's got to be at least four or five years. Um, and you know, he's doing okay, and that that opportunity exists for guys, and social media really helps guys put that together.
1: I want to go back to your career at Nike and dig in on a few things. So. The Tiger signing. I know you were, you know, a big part of that. When I was there. (laughs) Okay. So when Tiger is announcing that he's going pro and, you know, he had this storied amateur career, everyone's looking at him as like the next great golfer. What are the conversations at Nike about signing him and paying him an enormous amount of money and really making him? A part of the business, much like the Jordan brand, Nike Golf was built on the back of Tiger. Well, you know, um,
4: it's funny because it, for you remember this is the mid '90s, so um, we knew a lot about him as an athlete and and you know his ability to play golf. Uh, I think the real calculation there, and and you know, I just got to give it to the to the cheese, Phil. It was his sort of vision that it was going to be a, you know, rising tide rises all the golf boats that we have. Cause we had golfers, mm-hmm. right? Curtis Strange, we, you know, we had, we had Nick Faldo, I mean, we had guys and we had product going back to the Air Wentworth. God, I don't know when that came out. I think that might have been in the eighties, right? <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. So, I mean, um, uh, it was not like we weren't in the business, but the entire business was in a, in just a lull. Right. And there wasn't a lot coming out of it. There wasn't a lot coming out of footwear for sure. Apparel had sort of, you know, beached itself on this kind of ugly non-performance thing and, and, and there was nothing happening in accessories. And, and so, um, you know, it was really kind of the discussions were around, well, can we not, this isn't just about selling a few more Shoes, you know, can we just like bid a, do- a dose of energy into the whole thing, and then we'll take our chances and see how well we do? But let's just, jam- you know, bust the whole thing up, and that was sort of the, the risk that we took. And and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that it did grow uh, Nike's business a tremendous amount in golf, but golf in general as well. And and all you need to do is just go to the events, and you know. And unfortunately, since Tiger hasn't been as dominant, you know, the events have suffered. I mean, I think it's it's a um, you know, the rare athlete that does that, you know that can bring people I mean, I'm not a golfer. I played for years after that, right. You know, I eventually quit again. <laughs> I went back to my normal self. but I mean it was it's just you know the rare athlete that that can really transform um uh, a sport into something that all of a sudden a lot of people are interested in and that weren't normally interested in before
1: I mean to me, the two greatest endorsement signings in sports history m j. Which, by the way, MJ wore Adidas before he became a Nike. Converse too, Right? Mm-hmm. And then Tiger. Because right. Tiger really, like you said, changed golf, made golf cool. The casual golfer was like, hey, I may not be very good, but I'm going to put on some Tiger Woods apparel, whether it's shoes or apparel. and And... You know, it it made people tune in to golf. Oh, when was Tiger was playing, it was must-see TV, and I yeah. think that's what golf is missing now. So, all right, fast forward, and then you get to LeBron. Yeah. And you've got LeBron, The Chosen. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I had a front-row seat for that yeah. whole thing and yeah. watched, you know, Lynn work some of his magic, Lynn Merritt. He was the best. And he is the best, yeah. You guys came into that game late I mean Reebok and Adidas had been chasing LeBron for years Nike kind of came in third of those three what was the conversation with Phil hey Phil this is how much we got to pay a guy who's never played in college he's never played a game in the NBA he was a really good high school player he's going to be the next Jordan sign him
4: well, again, I mean, I think it was, um, you know, I, I, I will say from the beginning, Phil did understand how good he was. I mean, it, we didn't, there was never really any, you know, having to convince him of that. I also would say that, you know, you mentioned Lynn, Lynn Merritt, who um, eventually took my job there at, in basketball when I moved on to other stuff. Um, Lynn has done a masterful job, probably, you, know, you talk about my relationships, he's the relationship king and and that um is what got that over the finish line at the end was you know he just was a very trustworthy dude and that uh LeBron family believed in that um the assessment there really is again you know how can you know if you reflect back on basketball in the late 90s and early 2000s you know again sort of a little bit it niched itself and was not as broad as it should be stars were um not as popular we had a couple of kind of you know Shooting stars, Vince Carter, you know that type of thing, and and um, but nothing really sustained. Kobe was at Adidas at the time, hadn't really proven anything, but he was certainly newsworthy over there. Um, and then AI at at um, Reebok. So, you know, uh, you know how do you how do you kind of combat that? But we weren't just looking for someone to compete with those guys. We were again, like in the Tiger example, looking for you know a pivot point, something that would kind of change the game totally, not just. Well, you got Kobe, we got whatever. We wanted to change the whole thing. So that, that was, again, the assessment. When you do, when you think about it that way, you know, then the, the, what you think you'd pay and all that kind of stuff changes. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, although there's been lots of stories, you know, we didn't, we weren't the highest payer. So, um, and often we're not. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Nike's done. Even though there's a lot of money out there, we don't always have to pay the most. So, and in that situation, it was, you know, trying to navigate that. But Lynn did a great job. And at the end of the day, you know, we, it came down to the wire, but we got it done.
1: Well, the other thing that I've always said about Nike that you guys did better than anyone else is, You didn't spend all your money on signing the athlete. You also had a hefty budget for promoting them. And, you know, I don't care if it was the Charles Barkley commercials, the Air (laughs) Jordan commercials, the David Robinson commercials. You know, even I remember some of the tennis commercials with John McEnroe, obviously the Tiger commercials. You made these athletes superheroes. You made them household names, which obviously helped them with other business lines and other endorsement opportunities.
4: Yeah, that, that model then was really linear, um, you know, now it's way different. And, you know, when you sign now, um, you've got to, first of all, you've got to come with a whole lot of um, marketing kind of persona already. Right. And and you cultivate that through your social media, and, and if it's a sport that there's a college, I don't know, you've played in college, you've got that legacy, mm-hmm. um, and that's very powerful. Um, and, and you know, it, it's just not as simple now as sign a deal get a soft drink, and get commercials. Right. It, it, it doesn't work that way anymore. So, um, And also, I would submit that, you know, that sort of fame and business-building potential is a lot more fleeting. You know, your window is really tight unless you're extraordinarily consistent and really, really good. Steph Curry, LeBron James, I mean, those are rare, rare, rare athletes. Um, and so... You know, I think that in some ways, while well, like, you know, the previous point I made, all politics are local. You do have anybody can generate a business on anything, small business with a lowercase b. The big businesses are going to be fewer and farther between. It's just harder to put it all together. Um, it's just not as simple as, you know, I got my shoe deal. You know, Puma's getting back in the game. I hear all that. I think that's all great. Um, but it's not, it is not like it used to be. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, they've dumped a lot of money inside some guys and Jay-Z is or is not the president. I'm not sure exactly what what he is there, but um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes.
1: The models change, though. You're not at Nike anymore. Is there an athlete that you chased while you were at Nike that you didn't get that you're like, darn it, I wish I would have gotten that person?
4: (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I didn't get.
1: Or did you get everyone that you ever?
4: Well, I guessed wrong. I, I don't. I, I don't. I, I didn't guess wrong often. Uh, there are a couple that um, I'm glad we. I don't even know if I can get into that. There are a couple <laughs> that I'm glad we. There are a couple of high profile ones we didn't get and mm-hmm. we were right. And a lot of that, you know, in in football and basketball, I mean, I know that talent pretty well. So um, we we we. I think we were pretty good. I mean, I think that um, the. The one athlete I would have loved to have worked with, and I think some of us, um, at Nike felt like that is probably Alan Iverson. I mean, I, I think that, um, we probably would have had, he was very successful and he was groundbreaking on the court, an incredible athlete, um, from one of my favorite parts of the country, 757. Shout out to the Tidewater boys. <laughs> um, uh, Vic is one of those. <laughs> um, but I, I, um, I think if he'd have been with us, you know, maybe some of things would have gone a little better. Yeah, um, um, and and I I just really wished I'd have worked with him. I like guys from that part of the country, and and, and I relate well to him. So I, that one I wish we would have gotten. Um, but now, nah, generally, I mean, we we did pretty good. You did pretty good. <laughs> I was there during the during the hockey stick up. Things yeah. were pretty good when I was there. So,
1: so you just mentioned Michael Vick, yeah. and I mentioned you to him when he was on the show two weeks ago and when i met him at sports pr summit in new york and he thinks the world of you that's my guy but how did you guys meet and you know i told him he was the most exciting nfl player bar none when he was playing he was not only the best quarterback he was the best athlete on the field anytime he stepped on the field he's like a video game yeah yeah.
4: Yeah, Michael. So there was a time, you know, I, I, most of my time before I got on the business side of Nike was in basketball. There were a few, um, guys that like the football guys would come to me and go, Hey, we got a couple of folks that need basketball treatment. Didn't exactly know what that meant, but I, I sort of understood. Uh, one of those was Vic. I worked with Marshall Falk. I worked with Warren Sapp. I had Plex Burris a little bit when he started. Um, Mike is 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 and was amazing. I mean, um, you know, on the field, haven't seen anything like it. Have not seen anything like it since. Um You got to understand too what we're seeing in football now with the spread, and you know, there was a time in the mid '90s when you know Randall Cunningham was, you know, remember the the ultimate weapon sure. SI yeah. cover, and but Randall was a, a prototypical quarterback who just ran really well and was extraordinarily built. Um, Mike was a different deal. Mike allowed the offense to actually change its structure. Randall played behind standard structures mm-hmm. and, 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 and formations. Mike allowed linemen splits to be wider, two by two sets. I mean, everything to be very wide, um, because of his speed and his vision. See what folks don't normally get. I mean, we did a commercial a while ago called the Michael Vick Experience. Remember that? I remember like it. Yeah. It was awesome. The kids actually thought there was a ride <laughs> Um, and what that commercial tried to get to is not just how, you know, fast he was, but, you know, what he saw. I mean, he was, he, his vision is incredible. And the thing that's cool about being with him now is the way he sees the game. And, you know, he's on Fox now doing yep. well. And, um, you know, his insights are really valuable because he sees the game like nobody else. I mean, he really does. And he still can spin that ball, man. I mean, he throws it so well. And, um, he does stuff and did stuff that you just don't see, changed the way the game was played, changed the way defenses had the form um, and so on. And and what you've now seen in football is sort of gotten really crazy now, it's sort of coming back. But the spread thing, he started all that, 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 that came from him. Um, just wonderful to watch. And it's good to work with him. You know, it's good to see him kind of get settled and, you know, get his his business thing together. We're working on a crazy project, this pro flag football thing, which is pretty cool. And, um, he's going to start on that in two weeks. So, you know, I'm I'm happy for him. You know, he's been through it. He was uh, one of our, our top guy for a good while.
1: Yeah. You know, when he went through his stuff and he talked about this a little bit at our event and on our show a few weeks ago, but, um, you guys had a decision to make. Do mm-hmm. we stick with him? Do we not stick with him? How did you arrive at your decision?
4: Well, I mean, I personally, I never left him. I mean, you know, he and I have been tight through the whole thing um, and, and worked together through the whole thing. I think the company had to had to make a call with regard to how much commercial business would be driven, um, how much should be driven, uh, because it was a very, you know, a, a very important and vital um, issue that, that is sort of surrounding the whole thing. And Mike sort of understands that and owns it and so on in terms of cruelty to animals and things like that. Um, but at the same time, we didn't, you know, again, it comes back to relationships. We had to be a phone number that he could call, you know, if he needed something or just to talk. And so we maintain that. Um, but you know, we made the decision to kind of pull back on some of the business stuff. So, you know, I mean, I, at the end of the day, and I feel like, um, you know, you can say what you want about how much he's paid or needs to continue need to pay or whatever. But the guy's done everything that's been asked. Um, he owns the mistakes he's made. Uh, he's, you know, everybody's got a right to try to provide for the family. And he's doing that. And, and he's serving the community well and got a cool little family down there in Florida. And um, I'm hoping in two weeks he throws a couple touchdowns in this <laughs> little pro league we got and wins some money. And you know if we go on NFL Network, going to be cool. Um, and he's you know just it, it, at least he's happy and healthy. Yeah. So you know that's that's a positive.
1: Uh, when I was doing consulting for Nike, I was around the Nike All America Camp yeah. that don't exist anymore. Um, I've been around the opening the seven on seven right. football, right. Those are interesting cultures to say the least. You know, there's this dynamic of college coaches there. There used to be back in the day at All-America Camp, there'd be NBA GMs there when you could go straight from high school. Remember Jerry
4: Krauss watching Dirk Nowitzki back in the day? Yeah.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember Amari Stoudemire mm-hmm. like, you know, there were it was an interesting culture. Yeah. Um again, All-America Camp doesn't exist anymore. What needs to be done to either change slash clean up the culture? Because there's a lot been documented about it, and and I've seen it with my own two eyes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of people that don't have the right uh, mindset when working with the the young kids, and the kids don't know any different.
4: Yeah, no, it was a good point. And, you know, it was... Heck, you mean, you know, I was, they had me on 60 minutes over this.
1: Time. I know, yeah. I
4: thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did everything from 60 minutes, Wolf Blitzer. Oh my goodness. That was, uh, you know, it was crazy. And it, and it never really, really stopped. I mean, I think, so there are a lot of things that are packed in that. I'll try to unpack it a little. In basketball, the, the AAU thing and college and the NBA all lay over the same issue. You know, which is how to leverage basketball talent, leverage for the talent and the talent's family and leverage for the teams that are eventually going to get the talent. So um, and what happens is, is just dip marketplaces get created. So um, what you're talking about, the camp system um, uh, is a is a place where good players try to get themselves known and seen um, and. The, what folks don't understand is that there's always been camps, pro summer leagues. I mean, it's been going on forever. Right. You know, the shoe companies kind of came in and filled the void, um, during the time, but that it wasn't like this stuff didn't happen before. And the money came from way more nefarious sources before. So, you know, it, it, it's, it it's, it's, it's going to be there because kids are going to want to play and they're going to want to be seen. For me, there's a couple things that you ask what can be done. I think one of the things that I've been always been worried about in basketball in particular is that sort of the the pull apart from high school basketball and summer basketball or travel basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, this country, soccer's like that, but soccer's at a different place. I mean, soccer, club soccer's way more influential than high school soccer. You can say what you will about that. I'm a big believer in high school sports. I think it's the best thing in the world, so I'm always going to, you know, err to the side of supporting the high school. But I think in basketball, that has really been a thing that, you know, maybe you get the high school coach and the high school's more involved. That would help because it provides more structure, more rules, and so on. The other thing is, you know, I talk about college and NBA. So you know what's going on with, you know, one and done, three and done, whatever's happening with the college. Right. The NBA is putting the G league out there now and they're going to expand that. So what they're doing is sort of, everyone's sort of polarizing and going to their camps. Um, of my, that's a, that's an analogy, going to their corners. Mm-hmm. You know, the NBA is going to say, okay, we're going to provide an opportunity. If you don't want to go to college and make this G league thing and you know, you can do that. And now in, instead of, Um, maybe getting more democratic about, you know, cost of attendance and things like that and helping guys with financially when they go to college. Instead, the NC2A is going to go three or none, which is almost like, you know, when I came out, when you had to play four years before you could go pro. So there's going to be a bunch of kids left in the middle, you know, and, and I think one of the solutions would be maybe, you know, if college was, there was a little bit more of a, paid uh, cost of attendance i'm not advocating salaries for college players but certainly something a little more and there's two reasons for that one i think it cures the pressure you know of of you know who needs to get paid mm-hmm. but also too is just fair i mean to be really honest you know i sit and watch in another sport football but uh, you know i watched that that alabama game and <laughs> a kid too, through that touchdown you know he came through the nike system and I've seen him play for a long time yeah um and I just you know you're looking at that and you're thinking, man, this is the most spectacular finish and the most spectacular' because the broadcast the sponsors all mm-hmm. that money all the school the nc two a and what is he getting nothing well, i mean he's getting yeah, but see that he does get something, but the yeah. thing is is it is it the same you know it's like when we're negotiating if a deal's not fair, you always renegotiate. You know, and I don't know what the Alabama and the NC two A and the take for football was twenty years ago, but I can tell you that whatever their their profit was is probably a thousand times more now. Right. The college tuition and support around that that Tua would have gotten twenty years ago, maybe ten percent more, twenty
1: percent more now. Hmm. It's just it's just not, it's just not fair. It's not relative yeah. to the increasing That's billions the of dollars. Yes. So you know, I kind of think, and tell me if you agree with this. You know, and I had Mark Emmert on my show in December. I sat down with yeah. him in person in in New York. Either the NCAA is going to cease to operate as a <laughs> as a organization anymore, or you are going to have you know what a few people tried to start a year or two ago, kind of a, a union for the student athletes, right. Western guys, right? Right, and and it's going to represent the athletes and and get them what is fair, but. The, the problem is this, and this is how I see it. You've got football and you've got basketball. Those are the revenue gener- generating sports. Everything else that football and basketball make, they're paying for women's softball and women's golf and tennis and lacrosse. And so those sports aren't making any money. The two that I just mentioned are making all of the money. You can't really treat the athletes equally because the basketball and football people are generating all the money. Everyone else is, is sucking up the money.
4: Yeah. I, I, think that again, you know, the old coaching adage, you can't treat everybody, um, uh, equal, but you can treat them fair. And, mm-hmm. and I think that one of the things about that is, um, it's funny. I'm working with a group out of Palo Alto that's considering put, forming a collegiate pro league, a, a club league around colleges. It's called the HBL. Historical basketball league, um, and they, you know, there's just there's so much going on right now. People are trying to figure out answers, like to what you're saying. One of the things that I've seen in the work I've done with that group is that you'd be surprised how much money football and basketball make. And and the and the answer to the question is, you can treat all college athletes fairly based on that economy. What does that mean? Does that mean? You know, full cost of attendance, probably life or health insurance for life for all athletes. Yeah. That can all be afforded. There's a lot of money there. It's just a matter of how do you divide it up? And, and I think that those are the discussions that folks maybe are not willing to sit down and, and have because it really changes the model so much, but it is there. I mean, that, that final four in college football is going to be one of the most second of the Super Bowl I mean, right it, really, it is it is an enormous thing and, and when you watch everything that spins off of that, you mean to tell me that um, not only can those football players not be adequately and more fairly compensated, but the Alabama swimmer can as well of course you know now do they get the same salary or the same compensation as the football player no, but they should have relatively the same level of support. And things like health care and cost of attendance are really – it's not as much as you think, and they make more than you think. And I think that that's – just got to sit and pull the Excel out and do the math and really distribute it equitably, and I think you'd get there.
1: Ralph, there was a story this week. Uh, there was a quarterback at Washington State, 21 years old, killed himself about a year uh-huh. ago. The studies came out that he had CTE, and he had the brain of a 65-year-old man. Twenty-one years old. Wow! You work in football a lot. I played, you played, uh, had kids who played. My sons played. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, do you see any kind of a decrease in the participation of football, or is that? kind of a fable that's floating around right now that, oh, my kid isn't gonna play because I don't want him to have CTE or get hurt and wind up like this young man at Washington State.
4: Yeah, it, well there's no doubt that participation has is, is taking a hit. I, I think that it has come in waves. I mean there was a real, real steep fall off three or four year four or five years ago, then it kinda of sort of stabilized and, and then some some parts of the country see it later than others. But there's absolutely no question there are fewer kids um, embarking on, on tackle football, and particularly at the earlier ages, because in most states, you know, you play between second, third grade, start. Some places like my, my boys down in Dade County, they start them in preschool. Um But it, it's, so it's definitely seen that. What has also happened is the advent of Flag and Seven On and so on, you know, there are parts of the football participation numbers that have gone up. So, you know, overall, you're still looking at you know, four and a half, five million kids that are playing football at some level, um, at the high school level and below, uh, which is a good thing. I think the sport is, 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 is really, really, um, teaches a lot of lessons, but I think the concussion thing and the overall health piece is something that you can't sleep on. I mean, people are really concerned. Um, I've talked to, well, I talk to families all the time about it. You know, um, it, am I worried about my sons? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I do think that there was a change in the way the game was taught, and what will, as we now try to change back or make it safer, you know, you will see some of those um, things. I, be, I, I think start to reverse. Um, I think in the in the late eighties, nineties, the head was bought into the game. Certainly in the late, in the mid nineties, and you know, and I've talked to a lot of old heads in football. One of the reasons, if you know coaching, you taught, there used to be a way to tackle. You were taught where you bull the neck and you strike with the front of the head and the chest and so on. That actually was done for safety reasons. It was the new, I don't even remember, Nick Bonacani's son. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he had a spine injury back in the day. and So everything back then was, oh, we got to protect the spine, we got to protect the spine. Right. So it was, you know, in the neck and creating almost this battering ram effect, which involved your head. And then, you know, you get the ESPNs and all that that would kind of, you know, Glorify the big hit, right? And there you have it. I mean, yeah. and, and it's when I learned to play, none of that existed. I learned to play using my shoulder and my forearm, and and so now it's going back to that. Now they call it rugby tackling. Back then, that's just how we learned how to tackle. So you know, I think that some of those advancements will will have taken an effect, and also the equipment. You know, mm-hmm. um, I work for with Vices. i on the board there, which is the helmet company up in Seattle. A great Northwest group of guys, and developed a helmet that's soft. And the NFL is not taking this the number one ranked helmet uh, in the NFL, and it's a um, you know total um, revolution in how. Um, impact management, it actually absorbs. It really, you can push it in. It's like a, a um, uh, it feels like it has air in it, but there's a cushioning technology. So that's helping, and, and um, they've got over 100 players in the NFL wearing it, now rolling it out. So, you know, equipment's going to have a part. Coaching's going to have a part. And general fitness and, you know, kids being, you know, starting them later. You know, I think that's the big trend right now. Now people are starting tackle in, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth grade. As opposed to third, fourth, fifth grade, yeah, and I think that also is going to. So you know, I mean, I think the predictions that the sport will go away are a little extreme, but clearly a concern, clearly
1: a participation challenge.
4: Um, but you know, I think it'll get better.
1: Just a few minutes left. Yeah. Uh, Kobe Bryant, another athlete that Nike Businessman. signed. Businessman <laughs> was with Adidas. You know, you guys signed him. He's now won an Oscar, and everyone talks about how competitive he is. Give me your best uh, Kobe Bryant story. <laughs> the, the clean yeah, ones that you can say, tell.
4: Well, no, actually, with Kobe, everything's clean. It's, it's, um, it, it's just a level of intensity. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's see. I mean, he, he was also good to work with. Um, extraordinarily competitive. Extraordinarily competitive. I can't stress. I think he and Gary Payton... And, and of course, MJ, um, I, I mean, a level of competition that, you know, would just. They wanted to rip your heart out. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I think the, the thing that I always, you know, when I first met him, this is like, you know, moment one. Um, I introduced myself, hey, uh, Kobe, I'm Ralph Green, work for Nike. He goes, hey, how you doing? Uh, here you he went to Stanford. I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I could have gone there.
1: So competitive in the first 30 seconds. Right off the jump.
4: Yeah. And I just looked at him and, like, okay, young brother, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Let's get started. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That was my, that was the first one, (laughs) the first moment.
1: I've heard that he wanted an incredible amount of uh, say and control in his product. Like he was really involved. It wasn't just like, hey, I like these colors and throw my, you know, Mamba logo on there. He was like really working with you guys closely on his product. He he definitely
4: had a point of view. I think in the, initially, because he had, I think he had heard that Michael was like that, and I think he just, he wanted to do it because Michael did it. Right. He, he he had, you know, he was much younger, had his own point of view, his own design aesthetic, and, and um, yeah, he did it off very well with the, uh, I mean, he worked with a lot of great guys in the design world. Eric Avar can, can link some of the great minds we've had at Nike, and, um even Tinker, I mean you know, Kobe was Kobe was good. Not not everybody can do that. I mean, a lot of guys go they will you'll look at it and they'll pull out a napkin and little pencil drawings and you look at it and go, Yeah, thanks a lot, and you throw it away. Mm-hmm. But Kobe was good with that. And and he made a point that, you know, I want to see everything, I want to be involved, and and I think it ended up making better product for him.
1: You saw MJ, you saw Kobe. I'm not gonna ask you who's better, but you know, there've always been people that have said like on LeBron, I mean that, that other thing on the internet is going crazy. It's ridiculous. No, but here is my question about MJ and Kobe. Like even down to if you listen to their tone and mannerisms in interviews, it was like Kobe channeled MJ. He wanted to be MJ well, was and hero. imitate him. It was his hero, right? I
4: mean, uh, you know, if if I made it to the pros and I channeled anybody, I'd be Dick Butkus. That was my guy. <laughs> so you know, I. It, but that would
1: you be in the Miller like commercials? That, absolutely, Less the filling? first
4: one tastes great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was his hero. Um, they're also physically, uh, almost identical, right? you know? Um, and I think that, you know, that says something about the way they played. I mean, the LeBron MJ thing is, um, you know, a whole different thing. And I think a lot of that's just generational and, you know, which is great. To
1: have. So here's my story. And I don't know <laughs> if you were there that day. So I worked the Jordan Capitol classic in DC, right. D. C. D. C., right. And it was the year that LeBron played. Oh, Chris Paul was in that game. Man. Shannon Brown was man. in that game. And I always remember LeBron already had his own publicist. Yes. He's in high school, his own publicist. And they had all of these things outlined of what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And one of the things he wouldn't do is he was mad at ESPN because of Hummergate. Right. So he wouldn't do anything with ESPN. So for the course of the week, ESPN's following Chris Paul and Shannon Brown around. Well, LeBron gets jealous, and he he wants to be part of this. Like, how am I excluded from this? And it's like your PR people said you wanted nothing to do with this piece with ESPN. So as the week's going on, LeBron's trying to integrate himself into this piece more and more. Photobomb. We call it photobomb now. (laughs) But I was there for the first MJ-LeBron meeting. Because they they take the one-on-one pictures and shake hands, and they do the group picture. And I got to tell you, even at that point, you could feel the tension. You could feel the iciness. You could feel like MJ is literally the king at that point. And the guy who wants to be king walks in like he owns the place. And it didn't set well with MJ. And they smiled for the picture. But you could feel if you were in that room that there was a discord there. And I got to tell you. I still feel it. I still feel like, (laughs) you know, MJ, who wants to rip your throat out, who wants to be the best, he's like, how dare this guy, no matter how old he is now and no matter what he's done, try and challenge me for the throne.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm Michael's so competitive and I, I, I was not there for that, but it does not surprise me at all. And Michael's so competitive um, that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't LeBron called the chosen one or yeah. something to that time? Yeah. yeah. See, Michael's from the school where you don't do any of that till you earn it, right? So. Right. So um, he didn't like it. You know. And, and that's, but, you know, it is what it is. That's why I said a lot of this is generational. I mean, like right. kids today think, oh, it's all about LeBron and so on. And, and for me, I just like, the, I love debates like that because I think it's just the thing. It's one of the best things about sports. I have my
1: own opinion. Well, um, the one thing you can't debate, and you already said it earlier in the interview, The Jordan brand has been one of the most successful brands that Nike's ever started and has done better than what LeBron has done as far as if you're just going to compare sales to sales, MJ has beaten LeBron pretty handily. Yeah.
4: And there's one thing you got to say even before that that you can't compare.
1: Six. That's right. Six and oh, by the way. That's right. Yeah. No, I'm I'm from the MJ school. Like if you're going to ask who's the greatest of all time, I'm voting MJ every time. Yeah and i don't even know if lebron's second in my mind yeah. and you know again this is a debate for yeah, it's just for a the great, ages it's a great
4: topic but once you lay those two things out that you right. just said yeah. you can argue about anything else you want but honestly the rest of it don't matter yep. right i mean
1: it so before matter. we wrap columbia yeah. consulting group yes. you can go to columbia consulting group llc.com LLC. yep learn more about what you're doing, but give our audience a little bit of an overview of what you are doing post-Nike.
4: Yeah, the thing for me has all been technology. And, you know, as I saw the rise of technology brands, not only on the media side, but really in sports performance. I don't know if you remember Spark, but it was a little experiment we had at Nike. I was really involved in that. And that was just the way to kind of quantify and, and identify sports performance. And I took that and made a business out of it. And there's a lot of companies, whether it's, you know, performance and material companies like Vices are making helmets, or companies that are trying to monitor athlete performance. Analytics um, are a- huge. Analytics huh? are the thing. Um, another thing that you will see balance of power and influence. You know, right now I think the owners and the teams are a little bit more ahead. They capturing capturing motion and biological mm. data and all this stuff. I think the athletes need to get a little more. You know, and that's some of those NBA guys are into that. Right. You know, they're starting to understand their own data and their own, their own, um, the value of the data that they produce. Um, but, you know, that's, I think that's the next frontier. It reminds me a lot of the shoe business when the shoe business was considered technology. It's kind Mm. of so much marketing now, but early in the days when we first came up with the airbag and shocks and things like that, when it was real tech, I mean, it was science. Right. Right. That's where this sort of tech sports performance um, uh, space is right now. So it's really cool I'm doing a lot with it, and it's keeping me busy. I um, got my sons working with me, which is fantastic. That's awesome, and, and it's been wonderful. You're a great so. dad. Oh, well, thanks. No, you really are. <laughs> and, yes. and I look at we your heard, kids. When you last time you saw them, they were I know, but I follow weeny.
1: you on Facebook, and I oh, see geez. what they've done, and. You know you should be really proud you, well, you, you, you know you. you know to me like i always say anyone who listens to this show and, and griggs is the same way like being a dad that's the most important job you ever have like Best everything else ever. we do is yep. a distant second and you are a great dad well, and you're leaving it. quite a legacy with your kids well, so
4: thank you very much it's it is the only job that matters
1: yep Ralph Green, thank you so much for Thanks, joining BB. me.
4: It's good to see you, man. Good, keep doing what you're doing and call me if you need
1: anything. <laughs> thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready from an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations? 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further. Than Boingo wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G, now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.